Hey, I'm Abigail, and this is Pete Curiosity. This week, I have Tom Velasco. He is a teacher of history and modern literature at a private school in Meridian, Idaho, called the Ambrose School. He's also a pastor at Calvary Chapel, Boise. I found him immensely interesting, so much so that I couldn't bring myself to edit anything out to make it any shorter. So fasten your seatbelts, it's a long one. Would you mind introducing yourself just a little bit? So I am Tom Velasco, and I guess, well, I met you, Abigail, by often speaking at youth camps. Of mm -hmm. course, uh, I would, I, you know, you would go to youth church camps and I would sometimes speak at those. So I have over the last, I don't know, 20 years or so uh, served in ministry as a pastor and as an elder at my church, which is a uh, Calvary Chapel in Boise. Um, and then I'm also a teacher. So I teach, uh, and that's kind of my day job, so to speak. I teach 12th grade uh, history and literature at a classical Christian school in Meridian, Idaho. Um, and I've been there total, this is my 16th year. Wow. Uh, but yeah, so, so I actually taught there from 2000 to 2005. And then I took six years off went, uh, to work full-time as a pastor at Calvary Chapel. And then in 2011, I came back uh, to the school, and I've been back at the school ever since. Mm -hmm. So I'm uh, still serving as an elder um, at my church. So I'm kind of a, a lay elder. I don't, you know, I'm no longer a full-time, in full-time ministry as far as that goes. But will occasionally teach and, you know, stuff like that the church or preach on a Sunday morning, you know, things of that nature. Yeah. Very cool. So, yeah. I have a couple intro questions. What is your favorite animal? Oh goodness. My favorite animal. That's uh, I'd have to go. Now, are you asking like domesticated animal or just any animal? Any animal. Okay. Any animal. So I've vacillated between a penguin uh, or a lion over the course of my life. Uh, and I feel like there's one I'm missing because I feel like there was a period of time when I started considering a third potential option. Anyway, the whole reason why a penguin is one of my favorites uh, is because when I was in high school, I my football and wrestling coach, uh, actually a baseball coach, it was all three, uh, he was a big Pittsburgh Penguins fan. And I subsequently, because of him, became a big Pittsburgh Penguins fan, you know, in the NHL hockey. Mm -hmm. um, and he was so obsessed with the penguins, he would have like stuffed penguins all over the place. And it just became a thing. I don't know. I just, he loved penguins. I came to love penguins. And then, of course, as I learned more about penguins, like the movie March of the Penguins, they're right. such a fascinating creature, you know? So there's that. And then lions, I think I've just always loved and been struck by the regal nature of the lion, by the fact that it is the apex predator uh, in basically every territory where it exists. And so, you know, just kind of that idea of it being the king in the jungle and all of the stories that arise with it being the, you know, the ultimate monarch of the, of the various lands. I think that's kind of why I've always loved uh, lions. If we're talking domesticated animals, I'm a dog guy. Although I don't particularly, I don't own pets and I don't aspire to own pets because even though I love dogs, and I'm okay with cats. I don't dislike them. Uh, I don't, I'm not responsible enough to take care of them. So <laughs> That's super funny. 
<laughs> Do you have a favorite animal? I love cats. Okay. Yeah, cats are my thing. I really like that they are independent and for a person who doesn't love to be responsible and tied down to things, similarly to you, yeah. that cats take very little work. Yes. And so that's why I like them. And that is the thing I like about cats, their independence, the the fact that they don't need to be taken care of. At the end of the day, I just love how much dogs love me sure. and how loyal they are and how how uh I mean just they'll do anything, you know, for their owners. So sometimes cats' independence can strike me as arrogance <laughs> <laughs> and also just meanness. So I love a cat that is really sweet. Yes. Sure. Okay. What's your favorite article of clothing? Mm. Favorite article of clothing. That's one I've never thought about. I'm not much like I'm very much a uh, practical guy when it comes to clothing. I don't accessorize and I certainly don't put on extra clothing as much as I can because I hate heat. So, mm -hmm. for instance, I'll only wear a coat. I don't know, maybe three or four times a year, wow. <laughs> you know. Yeah, so it's like, I mean, I, I just am very, uh, I, I just, it's like I keep things very plain, like a shirt and pants, socks and shoes, and that's it. So uh, I guess my favorite would be shirts, just because that's the one thing that I change with any degree of regularity that might actually uh, bring some sense of, like, having a style of some sort. But in general, I kind of, I kind of chucked the idea of style years ago, and just have never bothered with it. And uh, I don't even buy shirts that I think are like that I think look good. I mostly just buy shirts with uh, images of things I love, like like my favorite football team or Star Wars characters or superheroes. <laughs> so that's kind of it. I see. Simple man. Yes, yes, yes. How about you? Did, I'm curious what like or how other people answer that question. A lot of girls will say like sweaters. Uh-huh. Cozy sweaters. Uh, for me, I like socks. I oh. almost never will have my bare feet. Even when I sleep, I have socks on. It's very oh. comforting and warm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I never thought of that. I actually sleep with my socks on, too, and I think I get that. I don't like having my socks off. It does feel that I think socks do add a comfort degree. Yeah. yeah. So one thing I wanted to mention about youth group, which is just amazing, is that you always remembered everyone's names and you would only come to Calvary, Ontario about once a year. And somehow you could remember like the 20 of us and get all of our names straight. And especially with me and my sister, nobody would say my name first. Everyone would call me Grace, but somehow you remembered to call me Abigail. And what is your trick for remembering names? I don't know. I actually, to be honest, I always feel like I'm bad with names and faces. So I don't know that I have a trick. I think maybe with you guys, one of the things that helped is there was so much repetition. Sure. You know what I mean? Like I, I came so many times and there was a stretch there where I did youth camp, goodness, maybe every year for like like five years in a row or something. Like I think that. you did. Yeah. And then sometimes too, like with, I mean, I guess I, there were different youth pastors, but Ken in particular, I was I would keep in touch with Ken over the over the course of a year. So sometimes we would talk about youth group and we'd talk about people in the youth group, you know, things like that. So I think that probably helped too. But I guarantee there were names I forgot as well. But um I also remember when I when I met you and Grace, like you were saying, I mean, 
there was I mean how, how much how much age difference is there between you two? Seven years. Yeah, it seemed like quite a bit for what it was. So I think it was easier for me to just maybe I don't know, just kind of seeing the age gap, just making that distinction between you mm-hmm. or, or something like that. But yeah. Where did you grow up? Tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Uh, I'm from southwestern Oregon, so the Medford area. Okay. Um, are you from, Have you been there? No. It's kind of funny how eastern Oregon and western Oregon really are like two completely different worlds mm-hmm. <laughs> in every sense. Mm-hmm. In, in my mind, eastern Oregon should just be part of Idaho. Yes. Um, it's strange for it to be part of Oregon uh, because eastern Idaho or eastern Oregonians just seem culturally more like Idahoans. Uh, they obviously tend to be more conservative, more rural, you know, farmer types, you know, things like that. Um, Western Oregon is is obviously much more liberal and progressive and all that kind of stuff. Where I grew up, I actually, I say Medford, I actually grew up in a little town called Talent. And so, the, you know, Medford is on the I-5 corridor in the south, kind of right before you head into California. Uh, Medford's probably via the freeway. It's probably you know, maybe an hour or less than, or just over an hour to, to the California border. And there's, you know, the towns, the town I grew up in is just like, it's all, they're peppered right next to each other. It goes Medford and then a town called Phoenix, which is actually where I went to high school, mm-hmm. uh, which I always have to be careful telling about the people because they cannot not think of Arizona when I say mm-hmm. it. So there's Medford, then Phoenix, and then Talent. And then right after Talent is Ashland. And so Medford, when I was growing up, was a sawmill town mostly. The two main businesses there was Boise Cascade and in particular the lumber mill that they had. They had a lumber mill and a plywood mill. And then they also had, uh, there was also a, a, a logging company called Medco. And both of those businesses, well, Boise Cascade ended up shutting down a lot of its plants. The lumber mill is actually still operating there, but they shut down a bunch of other things. Uh, and Medco went out of business when I was in high school. And uh, basically, Medford kind of had to change. It just wasn't a lumber town anymore. And now, I hate to say it, but it's kind of a, it's kind of a, kind of a town that's been beaten down a little bit. Mm-hmm. There's a rabbit, rampant drug problems there, especially meth, meth problems. And the city just hasn't seemed to have grown. Like it, when I drive through, mostly it seems like it did when I, when I was growing up. But then you have Phoenix and Talent, which are tiny little towns. Um, Talent, I think, had 3,000 people in it when I was growing up. But I was walking. I mean, I could ride my bike to Medford. It wasn't like it was that far. But then on the other side of Talent is Ashland, which Ashland was like a mini Eugene. So it was, you know, a lot of a very liberal town, very different from Medford, which tended to be more conservative. And Ashland was kind of a hippie town. So really progressive and, you know, uh, also just really pretty town Ashland was. The whole town seems to kind of center around a park, Lithia Park, which is a real mainstay of the place. Plus the only skiing in the area was in Ashland, Mount Ashland. Uh, so it was a, you know, that's kind of the area I grew up in. And I was there till I was uh, 18. I moved to Idaho when I was 18 for college. I see. Did you go to BSU? I did. Yep. Cool. Yeah. I came to Boise State. Kind of a long story, really. I came to wrestle. Uh, not on scholarship. I wasn't on scholarship. I walked on. So it's weird that I chose Boise State, but there's a, a long history behind why I chose Boise State. And it essentially came down to when I was a sophomore in high school, all my best friends were seniors and all my best friends wanted to go to Boise State. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there were a lot of reasons for that, but the main one was all my friends were super politically conservative. They listened to Rush Limbaugh, they, you know, all that kind of stuff. And they wanted to move to Idaho when when it was right after the 92 election and Bill Clinton had beaten George Bush and they were despondent that Bill Clinton became president. And they saw that Idaho had voted 96% for George Bush. Wow. So they thought, yeah, so they thought Idaho was like a conservative paradise and they wanted to live here around everybody else who was conservative. So a lot of them decided they were going to go to Boise State. You threw in the fact that one of my best friends, he was a wrestler and he got a full ride scholarship opportunity uh, to BSU. And so it kind of just all seemed like where everybody was going to go. So I remember thinking, well, I probably would go to Boise State as well. Well, for whatever reason, for all of them, things fell apart. So nobody came to Boise State. Even the, the guy with the full ride, the guy with the full ride to wrestle, he went to Oregon State on a full ride instead. Um, and most of my other friends, they all ended up joining the military. So for the next two years, I kind of had no idea really what I was going to do. I was either going to join the military like they all did, although even then they were all in different branches or different, nobody was together, or I was going to go to college and I didn't know which college. And so when I was a senior in high school, I knew I wanted to wrestle in college. I wanted to wrestle for a Pac-10 school. And for people who don't know, in wrestling, Boise State is a Pac-10 school. They're part of the Pac-10. Well, sorry, not anymore because they cut their wrestling program a few years ago, which is why schools like Boise State were able to get in the back then because so many schools cut their wrestling programs. So I wanted to wrestle at a Pac-10 school and I wanted to play football at a small school. Like, so that seems weird, but that was what Boise State was. They're, they had a football program that wasn't small, but it wasn't Division One at the time. So I thought I'd come and do both. I see. Uh, yeah. And so anyway, all that to say, when I was a senior, I hadn't made up my mind where I was going to go. And uh, I remember it was probably halfway through my senior year and I hadn't done anything regarding college. So I went in to see the college counselor and I asked him where, you know, I said, hey, I probably really should get a start on this college thing. And he goes, yeah, it's halfway through your senior year. You should have already applied and been accepted and all that stuff. And I go, well, what do I do? And he goes, well, where do you want to go? And I said, well, and I told him what I just told you. I wanted to wrestle for a Pac-10 school, but play football for a small school. And he said, okay, what school are you thinking? And I said, uh, UC Davis, which UC Davis was a Pac-10 wrestling school, small football school, and a good school, like a you know good education. Mm-hmm. And he responded by saying, um, you're not going to get in there, Tom. And I go, <laughs> okay. And then he said, uh, so then I go, Boise State? And he goes, Tom, Boise State is the school for you. <laughs> and so wow. I just went for Boise State right there. And I never ended up playing football for Boise State, but I did end up wrestling for Boise State. So That's great. Yeah. I just have one story that I want to hear about your high yeah. school time. And that is yeah. when you were training for wrestling and you had a accident out on a jog. Oh, you want me to tell that on, on a podcast? <laughs> I do. It, it's my favorite story of all time. <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah. Wow. That's one that when I'm, I, I tell stories at the school I teach at on during our retreat. Mm-hmm. And I always save that story for cabin time with the boys later on, but I guess I'll just <laughs> share it with the world. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I was, I goodness, I was 16 or 17 
And I, it was the summertime and I was going to go to nationals. I was going to wrestle in the national tournament that summer, but I didn't have to, I can't remember like what time of the summer I went to national training camp. It must've been, it must've been in June. I don't think we would have gone in July, but it must've been late June because it was summer. I wasn't in school. And as I just said a bit ago, my best friends were all in the military. Mm-hmm. Well, my best friend, one of my best friends, Vinny, he was just back from boot camp. So, and he was in the best shape of his life. And we, when he got back, we basically just neglected everything that we should have neglected. We ate garbage. We stayed up all night, every night. We watched movies. We were, I just remember we we're staying up late and sleeping in late, not taking care of ourselves. And every morning I'd just lay there or afternoon because we were ultimately waking up in the afternoon. And I just think about how in much trouble I was going to be in when I got to training camp because I was not going to be in shape. There was always the reality that I probably would weigh too much because in wrestling, of course, you have to cut weight to make Mm -hmm. lower weight classes. So I knew that I was going to be in trouble because I would have a hard time making weight. And so we were laying there and he was upset because he was just back from boot camp and had let had not been training. So we're at his parents' house, which was actually in the mountains. And we were laying there. I remember he was on the couch and I was on the floor and he was just complaining about how he's like, he was like, I'm worthless. I'm just, I feel terrible. I can't believe after boot camp, this is what I've allowed myself to. And he goes, he just turns to me and he says, we've got to go running. And I was like, I don't want to go running. He goes, we have to go running. And I'm like, okay. So we got up, we, you know, put on our shorts and run gear. And then we went for a jog. Now we're on a mountain. So we're jogging downhill mm-hmm. the whole way at first. We jogged downhill probably, I don't know. It was like I said, I hadn't ran in forever. So probably only a mile, but I remember thinking the whole time, I'm like, man, this isn't too bad right now, but this is going to be terrible when we have to turn around and start running uphill. Yes. <laughs> and so we get to some point point. he goes, okay, let's turn around. And I'm like, okay, so we turn around. Now, here's the thing. Vinny had never been an athlete. He had never been in good shape. He had never done – I mean, boot camp was the first time he had actually, like, done something physically kind of demanding in this way. So I could always beat him in a run, all that kind of stuff. It was never even close. But we turned around and started running. And for the first time, he was in better shape than I was in just because I hadn't done anything since wrestling and he had actually just come back from boot camp like 10 days before so he was in better shape and i could tell right away oh this is bad because he's gonna he's gonna it's gonna be hard for me to keep up with him right now which was weird because it's the first time ever but then as i'm running all of a sudden oh my goodness all you know i just had that that feeling which i'm sure all of you listening <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i hope many of you tune out on this particular moment but all of you who are listening have felt i'm sure at some point in time or another I all of a sudden just had to go to the bathroom really bad. And I'm talking number two. And it was, man, it was like, it just hit my stomach so hard. And, and, and I just, I like so much. So I was like cramping and, and you're in that situation where you feel like you feel like you're going to go in your pants, right? Like you're just going to. And so then you're like, you know, clinching, you know, and the way I've always, (laughs) the way I've always described this is, you know, when you're, when you kind of need, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it, but when you're needing to go and you're holding it in and all of a sudden internally you, there's this sound, this like sound that you're, 
<laughs> We've all heard it like in meetings and things like that. We'll be listening to people and, and uh, or we'll be talking and there's some guy who needs to go to the bathroom and you start hearing those noises and he's trying to cover it up because it's embarrassing. Sure. But he can't cover it up because it's pretty loud. Well, that was this. It was just so loud. And I always call that the bubble. <laughs> I call it the bubble because it sounds like bubbles in your gut, right? But uh, this one was that one kind of bubble where you like if you don't hold it in, you're gonna go. Oh. So I called it the clinch bubble because you're clinching. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is often referred to as my clinch bubble story because that hit and I was hurting really bad right away, and so I had to stop to walk because I, I had to slow down. Or else I like would have gone. Yeah. And so Vinny kept running. My friend Vinny just kept running, and he never stopped to ask me what was wrong. And I think that's because he felt the need to show that he could beat me. So sure. he just was like, "Oh yes, I'm pulling away from Tom." And he never stopped to consider that I was stopping and walking. And so I was walking, and it just it. And I, I'm sitting here. I mean, I'm at least a mile, maybe a mile and a half from his parents' house, and I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to be able to make it to his parents' house. To be able to go to the bathroom. And I, but I like, I don't know if you, I'm sure he's like, this is so awkward talking about this, but everybody <laughs> listening, you know, when you have this feeling, it comes in waves. Yes. So it'll like, it'll like come and it'll go away and you'll think, okay, I'm fine. Right. Yeah. You'll think I'm fine. But then it's like, it comes back again and then it goes away. And each time it comes back and goes away, it's a shorter interval. Yep. You know, almost like, uh, I mean, forgive me. Almost like contractions. I say forgive me because I know it's nothing like what women feel in contractions. But I just mean it's like the interval just keeps shortening and shortening and yes. shortening. And I always think of that interval shortening as the once it gets to the point where there's no interval, you're just going to have to go no matter what. Yeah. And so I kind of reached that point. And so I knew I just had to go. There was nothing I could do. I couldn't make it to his house. So I ran up like I was on a dirt road. So I turned towards basically the hillside. And I ran up into the trees and I just figured I'd go find a spot and I'd just kind of take care of business right there in the trees. Uh, and I didn't have time to look around too much. I just needed to get to some spot where people couldn't see me. Sure. So I went up, went, found the spot, kind of got to a point where people could see me. And I just turned around, dropped my drawers and I let it go. And it was like just an explosion. Oh, dear. The, yeah. It was <laughs> And once I finished and felt better, I realized immediately there were a lot of things that were wrong. Of course, I was in such a hurry that some of it got down the back of my pants. Sure. Uh, I was in such a hurry that I noticed I didn't go to any place. I, I thought I would like, you know, wipe with leaves. And uh, I noticed that there weren't, there were lots of leaves, but they were, it's summer. So they're all dead leaves, brown, dead yeah. leaves. And so I'm like, man, what am I going to do? And I don't know why I thought this, but I thought I would try the brown dead leaves. So I picked up a pile of brown dead leaves in my hands and I tried to clean myself with the brown dead leaves. And when I pulled my arm away, all the brown dead leaves did was crumble. And so my arm was just smeared with brown dead leaves in my crap, basically, from the tip of my finger all the way up my arm. Oh and so at goodness. this point, I'm like, there's nothing I can do. I mean, I am just a mess. So I just didn't do anything. I just kind of pulled up my pants and got back down to the road. It's a hundred degrees outside. So it's like, I'm caked in all this crap. I'm walking up the hill really slowly because of the way I feel, you know I mean? Yeah. Like my pants are a mess. My arm is a mess. 
I'm just like walking like a couple inches at a time. And I'm just thinking, I got to get out of this place. Then I see my friend's dad drive by heading down the hill and he waves at me. And I'm like, I don't even know what to do, but the wave back. And then my friend Jack, who I didn't realize was coming to pick us up, he's driving up the hill. He sees me and doesn't pick me up. He just drives past me. So I'm like, oh, man. So I walk and I'm walking like this in 100 degree weather for like an hour before my friend Vinny and my friend Jack come down the mountain in the truck and they see me and Vinny gets out of the truck and he's like, what are you doing? And I just hold my arm up and I go, I crapped on myself. (laughs) And he was like, what? And he told me to go and I got in the back of the truck. He made me lay down on my stomach and put my arm out so that I didn't get any on the back of the truck. And he said, we're taking you home, which was an hour away. So I they laid didn't even the... take you up to the house to hose no, you off? No, he wanted to take me home so that I could take care of it at home. So I had to lay in, might not have been an hour, it might have been like 45 minutes. We were up in the mountains. Sure. And we had to get down to, the, down to my house. So that was the story. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a rough one. <laughs> it is even worse than I remember it. Wow. <laughs> so, Thank you for letting me share that with the world. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. My pleasure. <laughs> So when did you become a Christian? Uh, so so it's kind of a funny question. I, you know, it's in general, I would say I've been a Christian my whole life. I never had a moment where I thought of myself as not a Christian. I mean, I guess that's not entirely true. I had a, I had about a year or two between fifth or sixth grade, basically between probably sixth grade and ninth grade, where I would have called myself not a Christian. But other than that, my whole life, I believed in God. I believed in Jesus. I believed that Jesus died for my sins. I believed that he rose again on the third day. That was like a whole lifetime thing. I can't ever remember not knowing those facts. And I can remember pretty long ago. I mean, I remember my two-year-old birthday party. So I have a uh, – that. by the way, that might also partly answer your question from earlier. Like I have a decent memory. Sure. Um, if I If I – want to remember something um or if i'm focused i should say not wanting to but focused and so in one sense i I could never like there was never really a moment where i could say oh this is when i became a christian however there are a couple of moments in my life that were really transformative that i can point to and say this is a moment when i really something fundamentally changed Mm -hmm. in terms of my belief and my commitment to the Lord. The first one of those came preschool. I don't know how old I was because before school, it's kind of hard to really line up timelines. And I, but I think this was before my brother was born because I don't remember my brother being in the picture, which means I would have been three years old. Okay. And I was at home and I was playing with my star Wars toys. I was obsessed with star Wars and I was, as I was playing with them, it struck me that I would grow up someday. And if I grew up, I wouldn't be able to play with Star Wars toys. So I actually got really upset because I remember thinking, I'm going to be a grown-up a lot longer than I'm going to be a child. And so I like, I actually started crying. And my mom came over. She's like, what's going on? Why are you crying? And I said, I don't want to grow up. That was all I said. I, I don't want to grow up. And she said, why don't you want to grow up? And I said, because I don't want to stop playing with Star Wars toys. And she's like, start, I'm like, so what are you talking about? I go, grownups can't play with Star Wars toys. And she said, grownups can play with Star Wars toys. And I was like, you can? 
And she said, yes. And I said, well, why don't you? And she's like, we don't want to. And I remember thinking, that's crazy. Why would an adult <laughs> not to play with Star Wars toys? And she goes, if you want to play with Star Wars toys when you're my age, Tommy, you can totally play with Star Wars toys. So I was like, it really just buoyed my energy and mics. Like, I was just so happy. And so everything was fine. I was back to playing with Star Wars toys. I felt great. But as I sit there and continue thinking about it, I realized that I would, as long as I would be, I might be an adult for a long time, but I would be in heaven for much longer. So here's the thing. Even before four, I knew I was going to go to heaven when I died. And I knew I'd be in heaven forever, which was way longer than I would be an adult. So I remember thinking, well, can I play with Star Wars toys in heaven? And I thought, well, surely the answer will be yes, because it's heaven. So everything's got to be perfect. So, of course, I will be able to play with Star Wars toys. And so I said to my mom, I said, hey, mom. And she said, yeah. She, I said, what about heaven? Will I be able to play with my Star Wars toys in heaven? And she said, oh, no, son, you can't take your Star Wars toys to heaven. And wow. I was so upset. And I just I, I got up and I said, then I want to go straight to hell. And I started crying <laughs> and I ran to my I ran to my bedroom and I threw myself on my bed. And and this is a by the way, that was a really insightful thing on my mom's part. My mom has never been religious. Hmm. Um, I think at that time in her life, she would have considered herself a Christian probably, but she never read the Bible or understood it or really went to church. So it's really interesting that she had the presence of mind to, first of all, tell me I wouldn't be able to take my stuff to heaven with me, which I think is fundamentally a truth that we actually need to understand. And then that she wouldn't back down. It would have been so easy for her to say, I don't want my son to cry. So I'll just tell him, yeah, you can have Star Wars toys in heaven. Mm -hmm. In fact, I've told this story over the years. And a friend of mine who is a strong Christian once texted me and he was like, hey, my son just asked me if he could take his Star Wars toys to heaven with him. And I said, what do you say? And he said, I told him, I don't know, buddy, maybe. <laughs> and that's a strong Christian. Like, yeah. he was like, but my mom wasn't that. But. She came into my bedroom. I remember I was on my bed. I was crying. And she sat down. She let me cry. I said, Mom, I want to take them to heaven. She goes, you can't take them to heaven, son. She goes, God doesn't let you take your toys to, to that place with you. Uh, I said, why not? And she said, because he wants you to choose him and him alone. And that, you know, and heaven is going to be full of all sorts of other things, which are, you're going to love so much more than Star Wars toys or anything else that you could imagine here. And then I said, well, mom, I'm scared. I'm scared because I said I wanted to go to hell. So I was not only wanting my Star Wars toys, but I was also scared because I thought I was going to go to hell because I said oh. that I wanted to go to hell. And my mom said, well, son, that's why Jesus died. He died so that you could be forgiven for even that. And so two things I remember distinctly coming to not just know, but to experience and feel at that time. And one was that I can't take my toys to heaven with me, meaning I really had to make a choice. I'm either going to choose God or I'm going to choose the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm either going to, I either get to choose God or the things of this world. And I remember that that morning or that, that night I chose God. I sat there and I prayed and I said, Lord, if you won't let me take my Star Wars toys to heaven, that's fine. As long as I have you, I, I prayed that basic prayer. And I also really came to understand that night, what it meant to have my sins forgiven, that I'd said something that could get me, hell and i instead asked jesus to forgive me of it and then believed that he would forgive me so i often look at that as like probably if there's a moment when i really could say that's when i became a christian that's probably it 
And then, of course, I got baptized when I was nine. And so I think that is a significant moment. And, and that was one in which I spent time like my pastor made like I actually met with my pastor for I don't know how long it was because, you know, time kind of flies when you're nine. You don't really. But I met with him several times to talk about baptism, to talk about theology, to talk about what the Bible thought, about what it meant to to choose to follow him. And then he baptized me alone in the church that day. I remember. And so that was a pretty significant moment. Yeah. The other two moments, though, that I really identify as being significant came once. So that was, you know, preschool. There was one in junior high, which actually doesn't seem like much spiritually because there was no no obvious spiritual component. But it came when I was a eighth grader and my best friend and I, we were kind of Remember, if you if you recall, I said that between sixth grade and ninth grade, roughly, I would have called myself not a Christian. I would have called myself an agnostic or an atheist even. Mm-hmm. And that was a period of time in my life when I I basically fell in love with stuff that like in the world that I had always thought were bad, you know. Sure. And so I thought that I wouldn't be able to follow Jesus. Um, one of those was heavy metal music because my grandmother had taught me that heavy excuse me, that heavy metal music would, um, is, was devil worshiping music. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so when I made that choice and, and with it came a whole bunch of stuff, my best friend and I, we just got into kind of crazy stuff. We got into horror movies, like obsessed with them, heavy metal music. Um, we started to call ourselves stoners, even though we'd never done drugs, but we obsessed about drugs. We wanted to use drugs. We wanted to drink alcohol. And even though we were only eighth graders, we did manage to drink alcohol and to smoke cigarettes and to chew tobacco and that kind of stuff. And it was largely because his father would give it to us. So he had a dad who would give us different kinds of things like substances. And one, like his dad lived on the coast and we, you know, lived in Medford. And so usually when we'd see his dad, it would be kind of a, a road trip, you know, like we'd go spend the weekend with his dad. And usually he would give us whatever we asked for. I mean, if he had it. And I remember one one night or one day we went to go see him. We were going to go stay with him. And when we got to his house, the whole week headed up to it, we were talking about how we were going to get drunk, about how it was going to be awesome. We were going to be able to do whatever we wanted. And once we got there, he, for whatever reason, that time, he basically said, nope, you can't have it. I'm not giving you any alcohol. I'm not giving you any tobacco. I like, for whatever reason, on that day, at that moment, he decided he was going to be a somewhat responsible hmm. father. I don't know why, but that's what he decided. And so we got in a big argument with him, argued for hours, just begging and pleading with him. Please let us drink. Please let us get drunk, all that kind of stuff. Finally, he caved. What he said was, he said, I've got one bottle of peach schnapps, and I'll, I'll give you peach schnapps, and I'll let you guys drink all of it you want. He said, if you promise to watch a Los Angeles Raiders football game with me. Now, here's the thing. <laughs> Remember, we described ourselves as stoners, right? Mm-hmm. So what we were doing is we had this collective identity of like the, the misfits in the school. And we hated jocks and we hated sports. We didn't watch sports. We didn't enjoy sports. And we were when he told us we had to watch a Raiders game, we were like, oh, man, that's terrible. Oh, that's, we hate jocks. We hate sports. Sports are stupid. And he just said, look, I don't care how you feel about it. You're not getting any alcohol if you don't 
watch the game with you. So we caved and we said, okay, we'll watch the stupid game with you. And we ended up drinking the bottle of peach schnapps. And then Sunday morning came and we watched the game. And here's the thing. I'll never forget it. It was November 1989, this game. And it was the Los Angeles Raiders against uh, the Cincinnati Bengals. And the Raiders' best player was the running back, Bo Jackson. And that was that happened to be one of his two best games of his career. He rushed for over 200 yards. He had two or three touchdowns. And he had a 93-yard touchdown run. Uh, and he was the only running back in history to rush to have two two rushes for over 90 yards. And I'm telling you, when I watched that game, I was just mesmerized. I, I, I was My eyes were glued to him. Like, he was the most fascinating person I think I'd ever seen. And all I could think of as I was watching it is, I want to be like him. Like, I want to do what he's doing. And, and from that moment on, I was like, I'm going to play football. I'm going to become a running back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play football. There was nothing that was going to stop me. And I mentioned that story because even though that's not like clearly getting me towards Jesus, that actually set me on a massively different path from where I was headed because I was heading in a trajectory that my friend, my best friend was headed and which my mom was headed and in which my family was headed, where there was a valuation of drugs, of partying, of alcohol, where they were atheists. And like by this point, my mom was an atheist, even in spite of what she had taught me as a kid. And so that was the trajectory I was going. And with that, I changed my course completely. And I decided when I got back to school, I'm like, actually, I'm going to play football, which means I'm going to have to befriend these jocks and figure out a way to be friends with them or to like cohabitate with them because we're going to have to play football together. It's just going to be the way it is. And when I entered high school the next year, I went out for the football team. And that's when like a lot of things changed. In particular, I had a football coach who was a Christian. And he really took me under his wing and really discipled me, started teaching me the Bible, also made it a thing that early on I valued. But also there were guys on my football team who were, I mean, there was a spectrum who, who ventured from being nominally Christian to strong Christians, but I hung out with them and we ended up going to Youth for Christ, which is kind of like young life here. Mm -hmm. uh, so it sent me down this path that... I, I think ultimately, like by the time I was done with ninth grade or 10th grade, maybe 10th grade, I would have, if you'd asked me, I would have said, yeah, I believe in God. And I think I would have, by the end of 10th grade, said I'm a Christian. And then through high school, I would have called myself a Christian. But at the same time, my Christianity coexisted with things that mattered a lot more to me. So the last moment that I looked at that was kind of like the, the quintessential moment was, as I said, I got involved with all those Youth for Christ guys. The last three years of high school, in the summer, I would always go to the Youth for Christ summer camp, which was called Camp Harmony, where we would go up to the San Juan Islands and we would do a, a basically a, a camp up there. And my senior year, I went up there and it was uh, like, again, I enjoyed it. I loved it. Never really thought too much. Like, but Christianity was just like a thing that I did. It wasn't like a thing I gave my life to. And I remember one of the first days of camp, maybe the first day of camp, the speaker got up and he started, he, he shared his testimony. And I don't remember much about his testimony. I, the thing I really remember was that he had been um, sexually abused as a kid. And when he told his story, I was, I just was so despondent and beside myself because I'd never, 
talked with anybody who'd said that about themselves. I'd, I'd never like that's a that was a part. I knew that it existed, but that was a part of my life that I couldn't comprehend mm-hmm. or fathom. And I mean, I'm sure I had acquaintances who had been abused in that way, but if so, they'd never talked to me about it. So it was like something that really affected me. As soon as he was done with his his message, he asked everybody to go off and do a 15 minute quiet time to read some part of the Bible. And I remember I went off and I don't know why, but I picked the book of Job to read from. I don't know if they told us to read a section from the book of Job or if I just opened up my Bible and I landed on the book of Job, but I started reading the book of Job. And during my quiet time, I read the whole book, which that's like, it's like 38 chapters or something like that. Yeah. And, yeah. And so that's a weird thing to do. Like, and I went way over 15 minutes. Like, sure. I, like I was out there for well over an hour. And weirdly, as I'm reading it, there were things in my life. Like I said, Christianity was like this side thing that I did. There were things in my life that I valued much more and were more important things that I wasn't willing to give up. And I remember as I'm reading through it, even though the book is just about one man's struggle with his pain and adversity, I felt like God was telling me to give up these things, kind of like my Star Wars figures. Mm-hmm. And at the end, I was like, Lord, I don't know that I can do that. And then I just remember thinking, I have to. Like, it's not a choice. I I either choose to do this or I don't be a Christian or I'm not a Christian. And so I remember saying, OK, Lord, I don't know that I can, but I will try. And you just you're just going to have to help me. And at that moment, so I finished the book of Job. That happened. And I really do. From that moment on, I see it as a complete change in my life towards living a life that was and has been completely in service to the Lord. And so that was a massive part of my life. So I would say, if, you know, my testimony, how I became a Christian, it's a combination, of course, of a bunch of things. Sure. But those stories in particular were kind of the, the, the ones that really, I think, sent me down the trajectory. Wow. I really like that Star Wars story. That was long, but very good. I like the Star Wars story. That's very cute and insightful for such a young kid. Yeah, well, it was a blessing. The Lord let me me understand that, you know, for sure. So you went to college at BSU. What was your major? Uh, So uh, I studied, I I got a double major in history and philosophy with a minor in Latin. Um, and I was only like six credits away from a minor in English as well. Hmm. So um, I don't know why I didn't do that. I think it was just by the time I was about done, because that's a lot. Those are that's a lot Two two degrees and a minor. Yeah. It was six years in and I would have needed to do one more semester to get my English minor. And I thought, you know what? I just need to graduate. So hmm. I went ahead and just graduated. But yeah, so so history and philosophy with a minor in Latin. Sure. And did you get these degrees with the intention of being a teacher? Not at all. I actually, when I got to school, my biggest thing, like I had two goals, to learn more about God and about the Bible and to share the gospel. So I basically studied stuff that seemed relevant to those things. Hmm. So that's, so history, when I, like when I studied history, I was mostly studying ancient and classical history. And that just seemed relevant to understanding the context of the Bible. The professor that was like, that was my advisor, he was an expert in basically early Christianity. And so that's what I spent most of my time doing. And then a guy, I I was involved with Campus Crusade for Christ when I was in college. 
And the guy, one of the guys who mentored me, the way he, I really loved the way he did evangelism. He wasn't like Campus Crusade for Christ. Traditionally, they go on campus and they hand out tracts and they'll try to sit down with people and read through the tract. But my friend Bruce, who mentored me, he took, took a totally different tack. He wanted to be involved in college life. And so he wanted to be places where people were discussing and talking about ideas. So he basically started going to philosophy club meetings and he started going to sociology meetings. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and he started anytime there was like a conference coming, he would apply to deliver a talk. And so he would use these all as opportunities to kind of point people to Jesus. And um, it was his work in philosophy and how he would hang out with the philosophy department that got me interested. And, and once I started taking philosophy classes and I realized philosophers are always asking questions about things like, where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? What happens when we die? All of those kinds of things. I realized they're always talking about the stuff that we as Christians believe we have the answers to. And so that was so integral for me because it gave me an opportunity to be with people who are asking those questions. But also philosophy really ultimately is about argumentation. You learn what constitutes strong arguments. And so not just in the sense that I learned how to argue my points, but also in the sense that I learned how to really critique my own beliefs, like to really criticize them and see and get rid of ones that didn't hold up to scrutiny and adopt new ones that did. And so that just became a huge part of, of who I am. And so those were, that's why I studied what I studied. Anyway, all that to say, I had no career aspirations in the midst of it. So no design to what I was going to do. I did take education classes for one semester and I quit taking them because they were so stupid. Um, because frankly, I think the philosophies of education that currently dominate, and I'm, I'm not trying to say like, that all teachers in our country are bad or that public school teachers are bad or any of those kinds of things. I think you have, you can have plenty of very gifted teachers, but in my mind, they're gifted and able to communicate in spite of the philosophies that predominate. Right. Sure. I think the general ways that we look at education are really, really off course. And I thought that way back in 97 or whatever, when I took, when I took those classes, and so when I took one semester of those classes, I was like, I am definitely not going to stay in this program. This program is not only not going to help me, I actually felt like it would be detrimental to me. I'm sure they, by the way, I need to clarify that and say, those were two classes that dealt with philosophy of education. I'm not trying to say that there aren't things that could be beneficial in an education program. I'm sure that there are things they teach that would be useful for teachers to know and, you know, stuff like that. So I don't want to make a totally blanket statement in that sense, but... The philosophy that the philosophies that I encountered were weak, were not defended well, and I frankly were surprised were just embraced wholesale. So I just like I don't want to have anything to do with that. So when that happened, I stopped taking education courses, just focused on history and philosophy. And then when I realized I needed to graduate, just I was like, man, six years is that's a long time. I probably need to move on. Mm -hmm. um, my first thought was, well, what am I going to do for a living? And there was a history professor at Boise State who was serving as a mentor to me, not as my advisor, the guy I mentioned earlier, who was an expert in classical mm -hmm. history, but rather he was my spiritual mentor. This guy, he actually taught Asian history at Boise State, um, but he was a spiritual mentor to me. He was a 
He is a Christian. He, he is an elder at his church. He's also one of the best preachers I've ever heard. And he would meet with me regularly. And I remember we used to meet together at least once a week and get milkshakes and just talk about spiritual things. I was talking to him about graduating and I was expressing my fears and concerns because I had nothing to do. And he said that his son was enrolled at a classical Christian school in Garden City at the time. And he said, he asked me if I might be interested in teaching there. And I said, sure. And that was three months before I graduated. So wow. I went in, was interviewed, they hired me. And that's how I got into classical Christian education. Because you don't need uh, to have a teaching certificate to teach in a private school. So I never had the teaching certificate. I just went in and, you know, the next year I started teaching and it's all she wrote. I've been a teacher ever since, except for that little break when I was a preacher. <laughs> but during that time, I was teaching all the time as well, just not in the same context. Sure. Wow, that is so interesting. And what did you start teaching? Did you start with Greek? I know you've taught Greek. You're teaching literature and history. Yep. What all have you taught? So my first year teaching, I had way too many. For teachers out there who have taught, this is going to sound crazy. And it was crazy. And although my kids I had that year loved me, I think, and we still have, I still have a good relationship with, with a good majority of them. And most of those kids, thank God, turned out pretty well. <laughs> uh, I was not ready to teach. And I was, I was way in over my head. And it was a school that didn't have a lot of money at the time and didn't have as fully developed programs in a sense. And I, in my first year teaching, I had to teach seven classes and six different preps. So what that means is I had to prepare six different classes, six totally different material. Wow. Six classes with totally different material. And one of those classes was the same class. So I had two sessions of one class. So what those classes were, let's see if I can remember, this was the year 2000, was I taught seventh grade history, seventh grade literature. I taught sixth grade writing and grammar. I taught Latin I taught two sections of Latin 2, and I taught one section of Latin 3, and I taught, oh, that's seven preps. So maybe I taught just two sections of Latin 2 or 3, and then I taught uh, one section of pre-algebra, the one time in my life I actually taught math, which was crazy. So, oh yeah, no, no, I just counted that wrong. No, no, never mind. I taught two sections of Latin 2, so that is where I get my seventh class, and I taught one section of Latin three, and then I taught pre-algebra. So that was my first year, and it was crazy. Over the years since then, uh, I mean, slowly, bit by bit, we whittled that down. My schedule now is way more reasonable. I now have, I now teach on a given day. I have four preps on a Tuesday, Thursday. I have four preps with five classes. And on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I have three preps with four classes. Okay. So it's like it's much, much more, much mellower. Over the years, though, so I taught, I taught seventh grade history and literature. I taught eighth grade literature. I've taught sixth grade uh, writing and grammar. I've taught logic. I eventually would go on to teach Greek. So I have taught uh, three different Greek classes. I've taught over the years. I've taught several different Latin sections. Um, I taught advanced Latin where we read. We read the entirety of Julius Caesar's Civil uh, Civil Wars. 
or not Civil Wars, Gallic Wars. We read his Gallic Wars. And I've taught some more basic Latin classes. I taught both Attic Greek and Koine Greek. I've taught 10th grade history and literature. But for the last few years, I've mostly just taught 12th grade history and literature and 20th century. That is like current events and like the last 100 years, obviously. And I've taught logic and Greek over the last few years as well. So that's mostly what I've been teaching for about the last seven years or so. Wow. That is so interesting. So when I think of Greek, it reminds me of my big fat Greek wedding. Yes. And specifically the dad who always knows the root word Yep. in Greek. Yep. So I made a list of words and I want you to tell me the root. Okay. Now I got to be, I got to be honest, just an FYI. It has been years since I've taught Greek. I, and so I'm, I'm out of practice. I may forget. Sure. So this, this could be an embarrassment for me. That's okay. It's kind of meant to be funny. So, okay. quite, uh, word one, fear. Fear? Fear. Uh, I don't know that that has a Greek word. The, the Greek root, the Greek word is phobos for fear, but that's with a ph. So I don't know that, I don't know how okay. fear would. How yeah, fear would, phobia, that to, makes sense. Yeah, phobia is where it is where we is the word we get there. Yeah. Okay. Number two, yeah. leg. 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 I'm trying to think Latin and Greek words. I don't remember either word for leg. So, like I said, now by the way, it's even longer since I've done Latin. Although I do have a minor in Latin, uh, but I haven't taught Latin since 2005. So, haven't taught Latin since 2005. The last time I taught Greek was 2013, I think. So anyway. You're a little so rusty. Okay. I can't think of like. Uh, wheel. Another thing too is, so just an FYI, and this is something that is true. In English, most simple words are Anglo-Saxon words. They come from the German. Oh. And so, yeah, because that's one. So just a kind of a, an aside. And that's what I'm guessing for many of these words. Like, I'm pretty sure fear would be an Anglo-Saxon word. I'm almost positive leg would be an Anglo-Saxon word. Wheel, I'm not sure. I do have to say, though, my vocabulary is super rusty. So, But one thing I'll throw out with this. So English, in its original, is, Anglo, uh, is Anglo-Saxon, which is just a, a kind of German, right? Yeah. So when the... It's all, you know, the Angles came over to England when they invaded at the, after the fall of the Roman Empire. That was the base. So our language is a base Germanic language. And usually common words are in, are uh, German. So I'll give you an example. Like the word friend in English, that's from the German word Freund. Now, I, my German, I actually took two years of German in, in high school. No, three years. But my German is infinitely worse than anything else because it's been so long. But the, the word friend is Freund, or comes from Freund in German, or at least not comes from, but is related to a common sure. uh, etymological root. But the word uh, amiable or amicable in English, that comes from the Latin word for friend, amicus. Because what happened is two things. So the way the English language developed is you had it was Germanic. It was Anglo until the Norman invasion in 1066. The Normans were French. So when the Normans took over England and, and dominated England, 
the wealthy English then, their main language was French, but the poor were still Anglos. Yeah. And basically, English comes from a merging of French and English. But then you also have a lot of Latin words that come in. And Latin words come in from two, way, two ways. One from the French, because French itself used to be Latin when you go back far enough. Yeah, French is like a romantic. All the romantic languages are just how Latin evolved in different places. So in Italian is how Latin evolved in Italy. French is how Latin evolved in France. Spanish is how Latin evolved in Spain. Romanian is how Latin revolved in Romania. So it's like just it's those were all at one time Latin. So in English, we get Latin roots from the French, but also because during this whole time, the official language of the Catholic Church was Latin. So you would still have Latin, actual direct Latin words that would come in through the church. So I don't know, but I would be willing to bet that leg, fear and um, wheel are from the Anglo-Saxon. Interesting. Now, this reminds me the other day I I went into a rabbit hole of the history of swearing. Yeah. And she was saying that in you had the poor Germans and you, uh-huh. then you had the rich French. And the yes. and so the the French just looked down upon words that the that the Germans used and that because it was a class thing. So then yes. that's how swear words developed is it was just a upper class, lower class, and somehow we still are sticking to those same words today. That is so crazy. Yes. <laughs> By the way, uh, I want to throw in, too, part of the joke in my Big Fat Greek Wedding, because English has actually very few, like, we have a lot of Greek roots, but the Greek roots that have come into English come in through scientific language. When they would do scientific classifications, they would take Greek words, which is why phobia comes into uh, in through Greek words. Whereas, by the way, legal terminologies are almost always Latin because, of course, of the, the fact that law is much older. <laughs> and so yeah. when, when, you know, once upon a time when, when law was being practiced, like one of the first things you had to learn was Latin. Uh, but there's a joke in my Big Fat Greek Wedding that kind of illustrates all this, like, because, of course, Mr. Papadopoulos, he was, uh, he was saying, name any word and I can tell you the Greek root. And so half the words that he was being given, he was coming up with not real Greek roots. And the best example was he, he tells those there were a couple of girls who were rolling their eyes in the backseat of his car. Uh-huh. They, and, uh, and they're like, all right, Mr. Papadopoulos, tell us how where kimono came from, which clearly kimono is a Japanese word. It yeah. has no Greek relation. But he stops and he goes, kimono, kimono, kimono. And he goes, ah, he goes, kimono is related to the Greek word kimona, which means winter. What do you wear in the winter? A robe, kimono, which is totally ironic. <laughs> There's actually a word that kind of sounds like kimono, but kimono is not related to that word. So that's why a lot of words won't actually have those roots. Okay, fair enough. I have a couple left. Uh, yeah. Synopsis? Oh, yeah, yeah. So synopsis, now that would definitely be uh, Greek uh, because it, oh yeah, okay, I just figured out, okay, just remembered, synopsis, syn, uh, the S-Y-N, it comes from the, the Greek word syn, which means with, and then opsis comes from optic, eye, so synopsis is to see something with one eye, right? So, so synopsis is with an eye, like with one eye kind of thing. 
So a synop uh, so a synopsis of something is kind of to see the whole thing in one glance. Wow. Yeah. So that actually is Greek. Yeah. And so it's kind of funny because any word any word you see in Greek that has like S Y N or in English that begins with a prefix S Y N is going to be a Greek word. Um, but interestingly, any word you see in English with a C O N or a you know something along those lines is going to be the Latin version of that. It's the same thing. In Greek, S-Y-N, sin means with. In Latin, cum, C-U-M, means the same thing. So uh, both of those have entered into our language. Hmm. So, Interesting. Like confident, for instance. Confident in English comes from the, the, the prefix C-O-N, con, means with, or it comes from cum in Latin, which means with. And then fident, comes from the Latin word fide, which means faith. So confident means you're doing it with faith, like you believe it's going to, to happen. Wow. Kind of. Yeah. Wow. History. Yes. Root word. I'm still on my root words. Oh, you're still on your root word. Uh, yeah, history, that's easy. That's Latin. Historia. It's literally the Latin, the Latin word is historia. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Uh, podcast. <laughs> That, I bet you that does have, and I just am not remembering. I'm sure that podcast, pod, pod, podcast, I'm, I'm, I can't remember there. I couldn't tell you which, where that comes from. Is that Saxon? Is it, I don't think it is. It's, you know, with these words that are new mm -hmm. have their own thing. That's what I thought. That was part of my joke is I picked a couple <laughs> that I knew were just new English words. Yeah. The cast part, though, I bet is Latin, because the word castigate comes from Latin, a Latin word. So I, I bet you that that is related, but I couldn't, I couldn't tell you for sure. Interesting. So we'll transition, because currently you teach modern literature. Yep, modern literature and history. So we start in the basically the the sixteenth, or sorry, the seventeenth century, like the mid, like the like mid 1600s is right about where we really get get started on our studies. Okay. Um, and then we go all the way to the present. Yeah. So do you focus more on philosophy type literature or fiction like lots of Dickens or Marx? We do both. I I think we do focus more on the philosophical side of it, but we do a lot of fiction like literary fiction. But it's literary fiction that proves to be almost entirely philosophical, sure. right? So, so the main books that we read that are fiction would be the number one would be the Brothers Karamazov, which is a Russian novel, and it's a novel. It's fiction. It's story. In one sense, I could describe it as a murder mystery, in one <laughs> sense, or it could be described as a trial, like a procedural, like a trial procedural. But the book really isn't about that. The book is about the philosophy in it. And sure. in particular, the principal philosophical question that is retread throughout the book is the problem of evil, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the problem of evil being basically the argument against God's existence that basically says there can't be a God because of all the evil in the world. If there was a God, God would have stopped all this evil. And so the Brothers Karamazov was written by... Fyodor Dostoevsky, who is essentially trying to counter that argument. I mean, the whole book 
is really a response to that argument. And so it's it's literary fiction, it's a story, but we focus heavily on the philosophical side of it. You know, we also keeping in the same vein, we read the French I don't know, novel's not the right word. I, it's a satire. It's a fairly short satire. It's about probably not even 200 pages long called Candide by the philosopher Voltaire. It's fiction. I mean, it's a story that deals with it also deals with the problem of evil. But unlike Dostoevsky, Voltaire is not trying to preserve a Christian view of the world. He's essentially using the book to argue that the Christian perception of God is wrong, that 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 the God the Christians believe in could not be real. That's that's kind of the point he's making. So those two books, we actually kind of pit off against each other as kind of two arguments being presented on the same subject. But we do a lot of straightforward philosophy as well. We just read The Prince by Machiavelli, and we are current, or actually, no, we just finished Rene Descartes' Meditations on First Philosophy as well. So. Hmm. Can I come to your class? Yep, yep. You just have to sign in and let people, like, let the front office know. Uh, you might want to call beforehand because with COVID, there are. Sure. There might be different procedural rules, but in general, people can come in and sit down in a class. That's yeah, not a I wouldn't have to pay for it. No, uh, I mean, I don't think they'd want you to come every day or something like that. Sure, they're, they're okay with people coming in and and checking out a class, though. I might just do that. So you teach yeah. at St. Ambrose. Uh, it's called the Ambrose School now. Oh, the Ambrose School, and I yeah, assume well, it's based off of St. Ambrose. It is so. Years ago, we were called Foundations Academy, Okay. and the headmaster, well, a bunch of people wanted to change the name. I never really understood why they wanted to change the name. Their argument was, as they were expanding into high school, um, it would no longer, like, their, their argument was, the foundations are really grammar school, and so they want to have a new name for the upper school. And they settled on St. Ambrose Christian High School. And I remember when I heard that, I said, I don't know that you guys are going to want to do that. And they're like, why? And I said... Because everybody in the world is going to think it's a Catholic school. And mm. they're like, nobody will think that. And I'm like, guys. St. Ambrose been... was Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just using the word saint. Because we are a distinctly Protestant school. Like, we're sure. very Protestant. And so I was like, guys, they're going to think, everybody's going to think we're Catholic. And it took them a few years. We were called St. Ambrose Christian High School. But they changed the name to the Ambrose School to keep the Ambrose name while getting rid of the Catholic connotation of by saying saint. And I think that actually took care of it. Nobody mistakes us for a Catholic sure. school anymore. So what are, you've mentioned a few books here, but what are your top 10 books? Of all time? Yeah. Okay. So, well, let me go all time because the, the class, the class, it's real simple. Like, I like all the books we read. Um, the only one that I absolutely adore is Brothers Karamazov. Okay. Actually, and also we read a philosophical treatise by Søren Kierkegaard called Fear and Trembling. Uh, I love that book as well. Oh, I do love The Stranger quite a bit as well, but uh, by, by Albert Camus. We read all of those, but in general, the only one that I absolutely adore is Brothers Karamazov. We don't necessarily do my favorite books. Some of them I wouldn't be able to do because you can't like Brothers Karamazov is 770 pages long. And we just couldn't do like. So I'll just list my favorite uh, fiction works. 
I'll start with my fiction works. I actually have three different categories, and I'll, I'll give them all to you. So first, fiction. I say fiction works because it's highly doubt, dubious as to whether or not all of these are novels, because it's actually kind of hard to define novel. In general, a novel is actually considered only a novel is if it's considered or as if it's realistic. That is, if it deals with real life stuff. So mm-hmm. on that definition, The Lord of the Rings, for instance, isn't a novel, although people consider The Lord of the Rings to be a novel. Or when you talk about fantasy novels, those technically can't be novels because a novel is generally realistic. So I'm just going to say my favorite fiction works include The Lord of the Rings, which is one work. It's not three. Mm -hmm. It only got divided up into three because the publisher wanted to break it up into chunks, thinking that nobody would buy a 1,500-page book. That's what people thought. Mm -hmm. But Tolkien looked at The Lord of the Rings as one book. And if you think of the story, obviously it's one book. There's no climax until Return of the King. Mm -hmm. So Lord of the Rings, The Silmarillion, which is clearly not a novel. Uh, The Silmarillion, are you familiar with that? I am not. So The Silmarillion is J.R.R. Tolkien's lifelong work. He started writing it when he was 18, when he was at the Battle of the Somme in World War One. Hmm. He would, in the trenches, he would just pull out notebook paper and he would pencil out his stories, which at the time he called the Lost Tales, which were stories of elves in this make-believe land that he had created. And he continued to revise and add to these stories his whole life. And actually, on his deathbed, he felt he was not finished with the Silmarillion. And he actually asked his son, Christopher, to destroy it. Thank God Christopher did not destroy it. He published it. And the Silmarillion is arguably better than the Lord of the Rings. And the Lord of the Rings is simply one... Like, they, like the Silmarillion is a history of the world that Tolkien created. And so the Lord of the Rings is one small episode in that. He actually retells the story of the Lord of the Rings in the Silmarillion, but the whole story takes three pages. So if you can envision, it's like this whole uh, world that Tolkien created. Hmm. And have you read Lord of the Rings? Are you a Lord of the Rings fan at all? I read most of it. And then about page 1000, I thought, what am I doing? And I quit. (laughs) Did you watch the movies at least? I did. Yeah. Okay. So in the, one of the reasons why The Lord of the Rings ends up becoming difficult for people is because Tolkien actually published The Lord of the Rings. He never published The Silmarillion. Mm-hmm. But the way The Lord of the Rings is written, it is written assuming the reader knows the history of The Silmarillion. Interesting. So it's kind of funny because the readers actually, when he first published it, would definitely not have known The Silmarillion because he hadn't published it. Um, but once you've read The Silmarillion which is actually very hard to read for a lot of people. The Lord of the Rings is like, it just comes alive because you know all of the myth of the world, right? You know, like for instance, Gandalf, just as an example, he is actually an angelic being. Hmm. Um, And so you learn about where he came from and why he came from where he came from. And you learn the history of, of of the characters, many of whom are just secondary characters in the Silmarillion. But... Silmarillion, fantastic book. So The Lord of the Rings, The Silmarillion. There's another. Now, by the way, these books I would categorize not as novels, but as romances, not romantic, like in the sense of guy girl romance. But traditionally, medieval stories, which is what Tolkien is emulating, 
were called romances. And when the novel came out, the novel was supposed to be the opposite of a romance. You could have a romance or you could have a novel, mm. those two. So the third is also a romance in that venture, or, or sorry, in that vein. And it's called The Once and Future King by T.H. White. And that is a book essentially about King Arthur. And so have you ever seen the Disney movie, The Sword and the Stone? I have not. Okay, so The Sword and the Stone is a Disney cartoon movie that is based off of the first section of The Once and Future King. Okay. But, Maybe I'll watch so that later. Is it on Disney yeah. Plus? It probably is. Yeah. I would imagine. I haven't looked for it. It's. I don't actually love the movie that much, but that might be because I love the book so much. So, <laughs> uh, By the way, the, the movie only covers the first like fifth or sixth of the book. So it's like oh. the book goes through King Arthur's life, whereas the sword and the stone is just about King Arthur as a child. So anyway, so there are those three. And then Brothers Karamazov, which is a Russian novel written by Fyodor Dostoevsky, uh, which is one of the ones we've covered, which mm -hmm. I told you about. Uh, the fifth one that I would put in this like top tier for me is Anna Karenina, which is also a Russian novel written by Leo Tolstoy. Mm -hmm. I am currently reading War and Peace for the first time. I'm only about 500 pages in, which for most other books, that would be the end of the story, but it's yes. only a third of the way through. So I can tell that when I finish this one, it's going to rank pretty highly on my list of favorite books. After those five, I have another few that I would throw in amongst my favorites. Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen mm -hmm. is one of my all-time favorites. Other fictional works that I would throw in there. The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. Ooh. It's hard to classify it as a fictional work. I mean, it is fiction, but it's really, it's about people who live in hell who take a bus trip to heaven. It is one of the best books I have ever read. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Also, oh, the book The Chosen. Uh, is one by Chaim Potok, a Jewish author. That's one of my favorite fiction works of all time. Now, I guess that's not quite 10, uh, but what I want to throw in is kind of a second list that is fiction, but it's different because it's po they're poems. They're the epic poems. And so I do have the, the great epic poems ranked for me, and they are amongst my favorite works. And those include, number one, Paradise Lost, which mm -hmm. might be my favorite book of any kind at all. Number two would be the Iliad. Mm -hmm. Three would be the Odyssey. Four would be Dante's uh, Divine Comedy. And then five would be the Aeneid of Virgil. I would also throw in, and this isn't a novel, but it's an allegory, and that's Pilgrim's Progress. That is also one of my favorite books. Mm -hmm. So it's the story of a man named Christian, and he's on a journey to the celestial city. And each character he encounters is supposed to represent something about the Christian life. And then I have a nonfiction list as well. And my nonfiction list of favorite books would include Mere Christianity mm -hmm. by C.S. Lewis, which for me was super just life-changing. In a time when I was really wrestling with looking at Christianity from a kind of intellectually cogent worldview, and I was wrestling with that and was seeing Christianity as maybe not being very, very uh, supportable or defendable. Mere Christianity really opened my eyes to, you know, some, something could be very different. My second nonfiction is a book called Orthodoxy. 
by G.K. Chesterton. By G.K. Chesterton, yes. Um, which every person should read it. I mean, it's just one of those books. Have you read it? I, I assume you've read it. I actually haven't. I tried to listen to it on audio, and it was a little bit too dense for me to process it through that form. Well, and it's really easy the way he writes to for your mind to wander because he kind of is building like he's it's he is he takes so long to develop the very the main idea that it's really easy to just kind of like lose it's not that lose interest it's just your mind just wanders you start thinking about other things and then you can't remember where he was going and so oh. it does take an it does require an immense, a tremendous amount of focus but when you really do see the bigger point he's making you just realize he looks at the world differently from how pretty much anybody else has ever looked at the world. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so he's just phenomenal. Also a, um, I don't know if this counts. I don't know how to put this. So there's a book that has been published called the trial and death of Socrates. Yes. If I could include that whole book. Now that book is comprised of five of what we call Plato's dialogues. So there was, it wasn't actually written in antiquity as the trial and death of Socrates. That book could be my favorite if I was allowed to include all five. It includes the Apology of Socrates, which that was the thing that made me become a philosopher. That was a life-changing story for me. I mean, it, it's it's only 25 pages long. It's not much, but it was absolutely life-changing. It also includes the Euthyphro, which I think poses one of the most important philosophical questions for any Christian to understand, even though it's pre-Christian by about 400 years, it has the Crito, I guess it's four, not five. It has the Crito, which actually I don't really care that much for. The Crito is not super important to me, but it's okay. Actually, it's, it's okay. It poses the question of like, whether it's better to live a life, a compromising life or to die kind of thing. Hmm. And then the fourth of his, of the dialogues is the Phaedo, which is a contemplation on the afterlife and on whether or not the soul is eternal and on what happens when you die and on what the job of philosophy is. So those dialogues together are just, were for me life-changing. Uh, a couple of other ones that I would throw in from Plato are the Symposium, which was another life-changing work for me, and the Republic. Hmm. Uh, I would also throw in one more G.K. Chesterton book, Everlasting Man, which fits the same boat. The one thing about Everlasting Man, I'm not Roman Catholic. G.K. Chesterton wrote Everlasting Man after he became Catholic, and it ends up becoming kind of a defense of Catholicism and being Catholic. So in that sense, I don't actually agree with all of his conclusions. But again, the conclusions he makes about our culture and about Christianity's place in that culture are just phenomenal. So those are probably my favorite nonfiction works. For C.S. Lewis, you could throw in also a grief observed, perhaps. I know I'm very non, I'm very much focused on those. I'm reading another book right now called, well, I'm reading an abridged version called the, the Gulag Archipelago. Oh, I yes. can see myself maybe, maybe including that in my list of nonfiction books. So, How familiar are you with Jordan Peterson? Pretty familiar. I mean, I've um, listened to a ton of, I've listened to a bunch of his podcast interviews I am, I, I haven't picked it up in a while because I read a lot of books at the same time and I lose, I develop new interests. I am probably a third of the way through 12 Rules for Life. <clears throat> and it's really good. I, I haven't had a problem with it. I just developed other interests. So I haven't read it for sure, a while. Sure. 
a lot of the things that you're saying, I recognize from a lot of what he says, a lot of these books he talks about too. Yes, he does. And maybe that's one of the reasons why I like him, uh, because I think he has many of the same interests. I have not come by these books via him. I, I've read, I mean, I've read like, for instance, Brothers K probably eight times. And I'd read it, read it six times before I even heard of Jordan Peterson. I see. Same thing with Chesterton. I became a Chesterton fan when I was 25. So again, long before I ever heard of Peterson. So most, even though he is interested in these guys, like I know I have a lot of friends who come to be interested in those works because of Peterson. And so I wasn't. But I'm glad he's turning people onto those, yeah. onto those works. He talks about the Gulag Archipelago yep. almost every lecture and anything I've ever heard. It comes up at least once. That's largely because he really feels that this mode of discourse that that exists in our country right now, this mm. um, this pressure that people feel to say the right things, and if you diverge in opinion, that your life will be ruined kind of thing, is something that is very reminiscent of what happened in the Soviet Union after the Russian Civil War, mm -hmm. uh, when the uh, communists essentially took control of the country. Mm -hmm. And so it was like this, it's just something that was a feature of communist experience. Uh, another example would, so one right after the end of the Russian Civil War, the rise of Stalin, but another example would be in China in the 1970s, the greater proletarian cultural revolution, mm -hmm. uh, where basically young people, mostly like college aid people, used social pressure to ruin the lives of people who were considered political dissidents or political undesirables. And in, in many instances, even going so far as to physically accosting and killing people. And so I think Peterson and a lot of, you know, uh, people who he kind of dialogues with really see in our culture right now, many of the same elements. And so the Gulag Archipelago has that as like the backdrop against it because people were being sent to these prison camps on account of their in a bit like their refusal, basically not even just their refusal. I mean, so many people were scared to go to the gulags that they would try to comply with everything and would just fail because you can't do it perfectly. Right. Yeah. Um, I'll give you an example. The Gulag Archipelago mentions, and Peterson's probably mentioned this before a scenario where the communist party in a particular city is meeting and somebody stands up and makes like a toast to Joseph Stalin mm -hmm. and everybody starts applauding. And they realize once they've started applauding that they can't stop because anybody who stops applauding will be looked at suspiciously. So they keep clapping for six minutes, seven oh, minutes, eight minutes. It gets all the way to like 11 minutes. And finally one guy standing on the dais decides to stop and sit down. And when he does that, everybody immediately stops and sits down. So they all wanted to stop, mm -hmm. but they were scared to. But the guy who stopped and sat down, he was arrested the next day and sent to the gulags. So as a political dissident. Yeah. So it's like, that's the kind of thing where, you know, we live in a society where you have to say the right thing about race, about sexual and gender, like LGBT issues and gender issues and, and all these things. You have to say the right thing. And, and people literally expect you to say it. They have formulas that if you don't say it, they're going to really come after you. 
And I think that's the kind of thing that Jordan Peterson really is trying to caution our culture against. Um, Very much. You know, so. That brought up a couple questions. Let's see if I can organize my thoughts a little bit. Number one, I'm sure you've read 1984. I have. Yeah. What do you think about that book? Love it. It's, uh, yeah, and, and I think 1984 is also, now, so traditionally I've felt, and I one of the books I teach in my senior year is The Brave New World. Yes. And I have, over the last probably 15 years, felt that Brave New World was a more accurate picture of what was going on in our society than 1984. And the reason was that Brave New World posits the idea that people are not going to have their freedoms taken away from them by force and ruled by a totalitarian government. Brave New World posits the idea that people are going to essentially give up all their freedoms out of a desire for pleasure that basically the government will provide. The government or capitalistic companies, they will all provide whatever you want and you will gladly give up whatever freedoms you have just so you can not have responsibilities and so that you can enjoy whatever pleasure is available to you. And so it won't like we'll just glad we'll like kind of pass into a passive society without any kind of independence or forward thinking, like a, like a resistance to what's going on because we'll just be content with the status quo. Whereas 1984 presents a picture of a totalitarian regime that is imposing all sorts of rules to the society, which ultimately control people in a more kind of vicious and totalitarian way. And so traditionally I thought, oh, we're going the way of Brave New World, not 1984. And, and I still think we're kind of in a mix of the two. Mm -hmm. But what I've increasingly become aware of, 1984, and this is George Orwell, the writer, he is, he is very focused on language, on human language, yes. and on how you can control people's thought by manipulating the language. Yes. And so in 1984... The government uh, of the of the country that the main character belongs to, they use they they've introduced a kind of a language called doublespeak, right? Yes. Um, where they they basically they obscure the meanings and they actually give meanings to words that are the opposite of what they actually mean, and that is proves to be kind of a form of language control, right? And so. That's, I think, something that you see increasingly going on in our culture today, for sure. So an example would be something like, you know, what you see where people are fighting. And this is kind of this has become less the prevalent, I guess, thing uh, a few weeks or I'd say a couple months ago, right after the George Floyd incident. You had a lot of like people back and forth, some saying uh, insisting that people say the phrase black lives matter. Mm -hmm. And then others saying, uh, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say all lives matter. And the thing is, is of course, both of those phrases end up having more meaning in them than just the phrase themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's important because the phrases themselves are obvious truisms in just the words themselves. Right. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like the phrase black lives matter is obviously true. That is an obviously true phrase. It's an obviously true phrase that 
99% of Americans could say, and I don't know the exact number, but a high percentage of Americans could say easily without any thought if there wasn't a subtext yes. meaning to it, right? Mm-hmm. By the way, same thing with all lives matter. That also is an obviously true phrase that anybody could say if there wasn't a certain kind of subtext meaning to them. Now, what's happening, though, is we're at this point where you have certain people in certain groups, and and I'm not calling out a single group here, right? Like people who tend to be on the progressive left will insist you have to say it their way, Black Lives Matter. And if you don't say it their way, if you say one of the alternatives, then they will label you a racist. Now, on the flip side, for people on the conservative side, they won't let you say the phrase Black Lives Matter. And if you say it, they're going to be they're going to consider you a progressive communist Communist. thing. Right. And so what's happening is phrases are now, of course, this is always true. Language has subtext. So it's not like that's not true. But what is different is the need that groups with power have to insist you say things a certain way, as opposed to what we should all be able to do, which is to stop and just explain what we mean, right? So I should be able to sit down with anybody and explain what I actually believe about black lives and white lives and all of that. And we should be able to do so intelligently through reason discourse. But the way it is, is you absolutely cannot say all lives matter if you are confronted by a black lives matter group. And you absolutely cannot say Black Lives Matter, if you're in the context of a more kind of conservative type of group. Now, a a better example of this whole thing, I think, is the movement that, you know, kind of prevailed there for a bit, the defund the police movement. Now, Mm -hmm. this is a better example of like doublespeak. When I first heard people calling for defunding of the police, I thought that's insane, right? That's crazy. But then I listened. Now, by the way, I disagree with it altogether, but I was fascinated when I heard certain people who were supporting the defund the police movement. And I remember listening to an interview with a person and that person said that people arguing against defunding the police were arguing in bad faith because they didn't because they knew full well that defund the police doesn't actually mean to stop funding the police. Now, I want to pause here. That's classic doublespeak because defund the police does literally mean Take the money away from the police, right? Yes. And then this person went on and said, defund the police. Now, this person literally said this actually means give more money to the police. That is doublespeak. Defund means to take away funds. She was identifying it as add funds. She says defund actually means give more funds. And then she says it just means allocating those funds to different kinds of things. In other words, what she would what she went on to argue is that less money should be paid on armor and weapons and things like that, and more money should be given to mental health support, uh, you know, things of that nature. Sure. So here's the thing. Whatever anybody wants to believe on police issues, you can sit down and talk about what you actually believe on these things. But that's not what's being done. There's a phrase, and that phrase is one that people have to hold to, and that phrase doesn't even mean the thing that they're actually arguing for. Now, by the way, it doesn't mean what she's arguing for, but for some people, it absolutely means that, right? So so that's where this gets all the trickier. Anyway, all that to say, 
this is what 1984 spends a tremendous mm-hmm. amount of time focused on is how language can be used by political groups to control people. Sure. Yes. And I remember specifically one sentence along the lines of a lot of the book reflects around the idea that you cannot criticize the government. And so this one sentence was something along the lines of if we change language so much that you actually don't even have the vocabulary that you can criticize Big Brother. And I have noticed that there is quite a mixture of a brave new world in a lot of the pleasure pleasure seeking and the really weird sexual stuff yeah. teamed with the language control. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. I mean, well, especially when you think about just the way in general, we think about as a culture, we think about things like sexuality or gender or things of that particular nature. We are really playing around with words in a way that are, is nonsensical. Right. Yes. I mean, we, we live in a society now where a good chunk of society believes fully that men can have periods, right? That they, they can actually, that they believe that. They, they take this as like a, a given. And that's because they have a completely different definition of what it means to be a man than what people have always had, yes. right? Um, it's a totally different definition. It's also, by the way, a definition that's really hard to understand because as far as I can tell what it is, the current definition is, is basically, if you feel like you're a man, you're a man. Or if you assert that you are a man, you are a man. That's not what traditionally has been the case. Right. right? And so, like, the traditional definition, the traditional definition of a man and a woman would have been tied up to sexual organs. That's what it would have been tied up to. As we learned more scientifically, you could have added chromosomes to the question. That's what, of course, I believe about it. But we live in a culture where I don't know. I, I I have to believe the majority don't believe that. I could be wrong, but I have to believe that I, I kind of think I, I would be shocked if the vast majority didn't believe what I just said. But definitely the vocal, the most vocal and the ones who hold the halls of power assert that a totally new definition of what it means to be a man or to be a woman. Mm-hmm. And of course, by the way, these definitions absolutely throw their whole line of thinking into some serious disarray, right? Because many people who hold these views would identify themselves as feminists. Mm-hmm. But what is a feminist? Well, a feminist is somebody, I mean, there are lots of definitions of feminism, but certainly one prevailing idea is that we exist in a patriarchy where men dominate the halls of society and where women exist in some, to some degree in kind of an oppressed status, right? What happens to that? When all of a sudden, being a woman doesn't mean what it used to mean. And now people who uh, have male sexual organs are women, right? And so I'll, I'll just give you an example of this. You know, uh, you know what gondolas are, right? The, uh, like the, the, the boats that they pilot in Venice on the little oh, rivers. The- yeah. Yep. And the pilot of a gondola is a gondolier. And, uh, that is a gilded profession, like from the Middle Ages. That means that there is a gondolier guild. And to be a gondolier in Venice, you have to go through the guild. And the guild doesn't allow women into that job. And uh, I don't know how long ago this was. This is, this is a news story I heard on This American Life, which is a, a public, a national, like it's a public radio mm-hmm. um, 
uh, podcast that skews very leftist, right? It's very, very liberal and generally pretty progressive. And this one told the story of a young of a young woman who managed to bypass the guilds and become a gondolier. So she was the world's first gondolier uh, or Venetian gondolier anyway. And so a newspaper reporter uh, wanted to basically do an interview with her and because they wanted to write a paper on or an article on, you know, it was like a feminist article, like, Hey, women have basically broke this glass ceiling that was holding them down. Mm -hmm. Right. So when it finally happens and she gets out there to meet this gondolier, I don't, I wish I could remember the, the woman's name. Her name was Alex something. Uh, she, you know, the reporter meets her and they get to talking and comes to, she comes to find out that Alex actually identifies as a trans man. Oh. So to, to clarify what this means is Alex, like I would say Alex is a woman. Alex is biologically a female. Alex has not had gender reassignment surgery either. Alex has female sexual parts and has XX chromosomes. You, you know what I'm saying? Like yes. Alex is a woman, according to my understanding and definition of it. But Alex identifies as a man. Okay. And mm -hmm. this spins the reporter into a very confusing space because the reporter now needs to stop and tell everybody that Alex, she, and I remember as she's doing this interview, she says, listen, listen, everybody listening at home, ladies and gentlemen, she goes, Alex is a man. And she says, just as much as my partner, she was working together with a male partner, just as much as my partner is a man, Alex is a man, which again, right there, I'm like, what are you talking about? There's like, you really can't distinguish a difference between a male, like a physically male partner and a physically female woman who identifies as a man. Like you, you think they are just as much a man in the same sense. That's like, that's the way people are talking and thinking and they're playing with language in a way that absolutely is ruining the idea of meaning, right? Mm -hmm. So she goes on to assert this, and, and this just shows her own confusion, because as she's trying to explain all of this, she says, so for the rest of the podcast, she says, I'm going to be using Alex's preferred pronoun. I'm going to be referring to Alex as a he, because that's what Alex wants to be called. Alex wants to be called a he, right? And then she says, so I will call Alex a he. I will call him a him. And then she goes, because that's what he is. And then she says, except for when I refer to Alex by the title, the world's first female gondolier. And, he, and then this woman says, when I refer to Alex uh, by, the, by his title, the world's first female gondolier, in that instance, I will refer to Alex as a she, but only as a she in regards to the title. She was so confused. She couldn't understand how to describe what was happening because the, they've screwed with language so much that words which are very simple and which have very clear meaning, he and she and him and her and male and female and man and woman are confused and you can't understand what's happening. And then she goes on and she describes an encounter which blew my mind. She's interviewing Alex and Alex is like, Alex turns to this reporter and says, you think I'm on your side, don't you? And the reporter's like, what? And Alex says, you think I agree with you? She goes, I don't. She says, a woman could never do this job. So not only is Alex identifying as a man, Alex is also a sexist man because Alex and Alex literally thinks a woman could never do the job of a gondolier. Hmm. And here's the thing about this reporter. This reporter was angered by that. This reporter lashed, 
like was like, I don't believe that. I believe a woman can do this. But what the reporter couldn't say is what I can. I can say, I know a woman can do the job. And I know it because a woman did do the job. Because Alex is a woman. I know that's offensive to some people. And I'm I'm not like a guy who just wants to be cruel. Like, if I knew Alex, I would be sensitive. Like, I would try to be mindful of, of how Alex felt about things. And I suspect if I was friends with Alex, I, I don't know. I don't know how I'd feel like about calling Alex by her preferred pronouns or whatever. But, I, I mean, I don't want to be mean or cruel. But the bottom line is Alex is a woman. And we all know she's a woman, regardless of what language we use. And I know a woman can do that job because Alex can do that job. Now, I probably knew a woman could do that job anyway. But with Alex, I actually have a bit of proof of it. Mm -hmm. But this reporter can't use Alex as the bit of proof because this reporter has somehow come to believe, in spite of the fact that she's a feminist and in spite of the fact that she believes that women are oppressed and in spite of the fact that she really, really, really wants to lift up women who are breaking out of this oppression, she can't cite this one clear example of a woman doing that because that woman just happens to be a man now, according to the language they use, right? Yeah. And so it's really, really messed up. And I'll show you another example, right? And this is one that is, I think, having probably, well, just as bad ramifications anyway in our culture. The word race, mm. or sorry, racist, the word racist. So nowadays, everybody's being called a racist, no matter what. So it's like, once upon a time, like that was something that, like increasingly, I think people are getting to the point where they just don't even care if they're called racist. Mm -hmm. And that's because, again, they've changed the meaning of the word racist. Now, when I was growing up and through most of modern history, the word racist means or meant somebody who hates another person or who discriminates against another person or who thinks less of another person on account of their race. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, that is, I discriminate against a black person because I think, like, ill of black people. That would be racism, okay? That's what it's always meant. However, the meaning has taken a totally different shift, a totally different turn, largely due to uh, what people call critical race theory, mm -hmm. where they've redefined that term in kind of post, uh, like, critical race theory is essentially like a, an offshoot of postmodern thinking. And it basically says that racism, first of all, is not like that. Basically, the definition I gave you is not accurate. Mm -hmm. and, it, and there are a couple of consequences from this. Number one, as you would ask any critical theorist, and this has just become kind of commonly how people talk, a person of color, a black person or a Hispanic person, and this just shows where the meaning gets weird, cannot be a racist. They can't be a racist. Even if they hate a white person because that person's white, it's not racism. Mm -hmm. um, because according to critical race theory, racism only exists, exists from the top down. Mm -hmm. It can only be an oppressed people group being racist against an inferior people group, mm -hmm. right? Or not inferior, an oppressed. The oppressed can never be racist against a, a, a group that is in power. Does that make sense? Right. And they also would say that the hierarchy is based on um, like percentages Right. Of my you're a minority because there's less percentage wise. So if you're in that minority group, whatever it is, even if it's 49 percent, that that 49 percent couldn't be racist against the other 51 because they're the minority. Actually, here's the weird thing. Critical race theory defines minority in a totally different way, too. It's not about how big or small of a group you are. 
being the minority group, and they don't even like using the word minority. They they discuss oppressed people group. Okay. It all is oppressed. It is all based upon how much power you have in society. Mm-hmm. And if you have power, you are in the white group. And if you don't, you're in a person of color group. And I'll give you an example of this. Typically, Asian people, by by most critical race theorists, or maybe I can't say most, but at least this is commonly asserted by critical race theorists, Asians are not considered people of color. They are actually considered white people. Mm-hmm. And they're considered white because economically, they actually, on average, make more than white people. Mm-hmm. So they're considered to be in the power class, and thus they are like basically an oppressor class. So those top class, like whites are oppressor classes, and then typically black people and Hispanics are going to be the oppressed classes. I see. So I just didn't understand the new meaning of the word minority then. Exactly. Yeah, well, and like I said, they rarely, I hardly ever even use hear them use the word minority. It's usually oppressed people group or people of color. Like they'll just call it that way. Now, the other thing about racism on this view is so the oppressed people groups cannot be racist against power groups. That's impossible on their view. And the, but here's the other thing. The power groups are racist against the oppressed group. They just are. Yeah. So just virtue of being white, you are racist. So it's kind of interesting when people like a lot of people will call white people racist or whatever, but they don't understand that actually, according to this definition, all white people are racist in virtue of being white. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, now for me, this, this whole thing is crazy. I mean, I'm, I'm actually Hispanic. My dad is from Mexico, came here illegally, right? Uh, he snuck into the country uh, back in 1972 or three, I think mid seventies, you know, somewhere around there. I was born in 76 and he came in, uh, married a white woman to get his green card. Mm. And that's how I was born. My dad, like I remember one time my dad told me to never marry a white woman because <laughs> white people are lazy. And here's the thing. That's racist. I, I Like according to the traditional definition, that's racist. And by the way, my father, like my experience has been that that Hispanic people feel far more comfortable being overtly racist mm-hmm. than most white right Mm -hmm. so so people will sit there and say that that can't be racism that it just can't be because because my dad is in the uh, the oppressed people group the other weird thing is so on my on my dad's side i have you know i i have kind of a line of color so to speak on my mom's side my mom's side is i mean you know they have all sorts of colorful names for it my mom's side we would have been considered trailer park trash or white trash okay here's the thing between my dad and my mom there's a very and kind of their two sides of my life there's a very clear sense of which one has socioeconomic power and that's my dad not my mom my mom my whole life has lived in poverty and my mom my whole life has perpetuated poverty in her own life and i'm not trying to like call her out like a negative way i love my mom but she has made choices that have perpetuated poverty. And I don't need to go into them all, but she has. And that has passed on many of those uh, to my brother who has done the same kinds of things. Now, my dad has made choices in his life that have enabled him to be incredibly financially independent so that he right now is middle class solidly mm-hmm. with a very solid bit of savings and the power to sell his houses and move to Mexico, if he were to sell the two houses 
that he owns outright in the United States, he would have about $700,000 on top of the savings, which he's had, which is sizable. And he'd be able to go move to Mexico where he also owns a house and live there as a multimillionaire in Mexico. That's the power my dad has. And my dad, I mean, my dad's not like rich and powerful. He's fairly middle class as far as that goes, aside from that. But he's financially independent. He can take care of himself. He does not live paycheck to paycheck. And he gets to live his life with a lot of comforts and things like that. My mom does not have those things. When my mom dies, she will have nothing to leave her children. She will have no property. She doesn't own a house. She lives with my brother in a rental. You know, so that that's mm-hmm. and so it's so weird to me to hear people talk about one of those being like that it's my mom who's privileged. And that you know what I'm saying? And I kind of get it. Like I want to be fair all the way around. I understand what people mean when they say things like, well, white people don't have to experience some of the prejudice that that people of color have to. And I think that's true, depending on the community you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think all these things, there's nuance, but it's amazing the way that culturally we redefine these terms and use them. And so the way people describe, oh, and then one more thing, of course, the big talk now is, of course, of systemic racism, that is racism that exists in a kind of the systems that permeate the United States. And what I can say is I'm actually, again, like I'm open-minded about a lot of these things. I think there's a lot about the makeup of our communities and of our institutions and of our history that actually do impact the lives of people of color in adverse ways. I also think, of course, that in many of those cases, people do have at their uh, fingertips, like my dad did, the ability to come out of it. I should add, my dad came over here in destitute poverty. So when he snuck into America, he wasn't middle class. Yeah. He lived in ab- abject poverty when he came to the United States, which is why he snuck into the United States. So for me and my perspective, my perspective is my dad grew up in third world poverty and became a very wealthy man in, in kind of that relative sense. And that's a reality that I think is available to not all, but like many, many people. And so I, but, but I, I do want to say that, yeah, I do think that there are, um, or when I say many people, I mean people of color, but I do think that there are things and I'm willing to like, I'm all for saying, Hey, what are things that we can identify in our culture, in our institutions that might actually be working unfairly against racial minorities, of course. And let's see what we can do about fixing them. But here's the thing. Nowadays, we call that systemic racism. That's, I don't like the word racism for that. Again, because the word racism used to mean I judge somebody because of the color of their skin or because of their ethnicity. I disdain them or I withhold things from them. It, it you know, racism wasn't something that was disconnected from human motive and intention. I don't think. But so all this to say, I only bring that up because I don't. So in one degree, I'm a philosopher. I don't care what words like how people use words per se, as long as we can get at what they mean. Sure. Which oftentimes you can't. But what I am intrigued by here is what kind of your question that got all this started, which is 1984, and that is how are we using language? And Orwell is pointing out how we're changing the meanings of words and we're using them to basically dominate the conversation and to corner the the dialogue, mm-hmm. right? And so in this like in this way, if you're a white person, simply asserting you're not a racist is actual just further proof you are in fact a racist. 
So that's a way you get cornered mm-hmm. in this particular uh, kind of conversation, right? Yeah. How familiar are you with the guy named James Lindsay? Uh, I'm pretty, I mean, I'm familiar. I follow him on Twitter and I read a lot of his posts and I listen to his podcast on, uh, or listen to his interview on Joe Rogan. So yeah. I'm pretty familiar. I bought his books last week because I follow yeah. him and I'm just like, I've got it. This guy is onto something. So I bought his yeah. book, Cynical Theories, and it's about postmodernism and yeah. how it's been used. Do you understand postmodernism? Uh, I think fairly well, probably. I mean, insofar as I think postmodernism can be understood, I, I understand a lot of facets of it. There are a lot that don't make a lot of sense just in general, but yeah. Can you explain it to me? Because I am struggling. It's so dense and so foreign to me that I'm struggling with it. Yeah. So postmodernism, and this is probably not, it's not right to really define. I'm not going to give you a definition, but here's the basic the basic bit that I will kind of go with. Postmodernism challenges the idea that words and language have objective meaning. Okay. A traditional way of looking at the world is that you can kind of get at some kind of objective description of the world through the language people use. So for instance, George Washington was the first president of the United States. That's a sentence or it's a proposition that has a truth value. It's either true or false. Mm -hmm. And the way classic philosophers or classic cool philosophers would have looked at that is they would have said, that's a simple statement with a clear truth value. And it's the kind of thing which you can clearly look at and identify as true or false. And it has an objective meaning that objective meaning and whether it's true or false is tied up with whether or not the world actually was that way. So the statement, George Washington was the first president of the United States, is true if, in fact, George Washington was the first president of the United States. It's false if, in fact, he was not and mm-hmm. somebody else was. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Now, postmodernism, I don't, different postmodernists believe different things. So that's part of what makes it a little difficult to, like, I don't want to oversimplify things, but it kind of fundamentally challenges that notion. Now, I want to be careful because I would imagine postmodernists, could probably acknowledge in general that George Washington was the first president of the United States. But essentially what they, what postmodernists are getting at is that mostly language doesn't have objective meaning, but rather language is always a part of an essential power struggle that exists between oppressor and oppressed classes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that the power class, the, the class that is dominating uses language in such a way as to control the lower class. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, this is kind of ironic because at the end of the day, like what I was just describing with critical race theory, which is kind of a subcategory of postmodernism, is doing that exact thing. They're Mm -hmm. trying to control the conversation through language. But the way that a postmodernist looks at it is the postmodernist basically says their goal is to deconstruct, that's the word they use, the language, meaning they want to uncover all of the the powers that are at play in a in a conversation and they want to show who the powers are and they want to show how those powers are using their language to control somebody else and then they want to flip that on its head and they want to now play the game the other way around and they want to show how the they want to make it so that the people who have been oppressed are now oppressing mm-hmm. or not they won't acknowledge oppressing well they'll, they'll call it kind of equalizing 
how they're now getting the kind of getting back some of what they've lost. And so for postmodernism, postmodernism is really tied into language and how we use it. And at the end of the day, postmodernists really ultimately are attacking this idea of objective, absolute, true meaning. And so if you follow James Lindsay's uh, Twitter account, you know that for a good chunk of time, he was getting in arguments with a Harvard mathematician whose name is escaping me right now, and actually several mathematicians, yeah. about whether or not two plus two can equal five, mm-hmm. right? And um, Lindsay is just asserting, Lindsay is following classical philosophy and the way classical philosophers have thought of it. To a, like to an object, to a classical philosopher, the way I learned philosophy at Boise State, analytic philosophy, two plus two equals four is not only a true proposition, it's not only objectively true proposition, it is a necessarily true proposition. That is, it's true and it can't be sure. otherwise. And James no himself, what. he has degrees in math. He is a mathematician. Yes. So yes, he, is he a mathematician. I listened to a podcast. He talked for an hour and 30 minutes about how two plus two equals four. But he went through all these different kinds of math that I'd never even heard of to explain how some really smart mathematician will talk circles around a layperson to try to convince them that two plus two can equal five. And he who understands it all broke down each of those different modes of math and said, no, no matter what you do, you can't make it. You have to change the meaning of the word two. You have to change the meaning of the word plus, and you have to change the meaning of the word five. Yes. So that's exactly right. They're, they're, like, you don't have to know, I don't know much math. I'm, I'm not, like, I'm not a math guy. But it, I do know that it all comes down to semantics. And what I mean by semantics is the meanings of those words. And so the postmodernist is essentially saying none of those words have absolutely objective meanings. And so consequently, they can make in their minds, they, they think they're making two plus two equal five because they think, they think that the words two, two plus equals and five don't have real meaning. So they change. So what they do is they just change the meanings of those things. But in the classical way of viewing those things, like the classical approach, the classical approach says you can change the meaning of the words. You just have to be really clear on what those meanings are. So you can say one plus one equals four, as long as you take care to define one, like what you mean by the word one as what every other English speaker means by the word two. Mm -hmm. Are you following me on that? Mm -hmm. So the word itself, you could say, is kind of arbitrary. I mean, in Spanish, right? Dos y dos es cuatro. That's two plus two is four. I just use two different words. That's all. That is a semantics. Even when you uh, that is a kind of semantics. When you write it out, the numeral two, that's also semantics. That's like a language, right? That's the numeral two. What we use by that number, that like that numeral, the written numeral, is represented by two things always, or at least the way we describe it. You could have used the numeral three to represent those two things. That's arbitrary. Right. So the way you look at it classically is, yes, as long as you clearly, you can make two plus two equals equal five. That is the words. You can make those words equal that if you define two in that way. Right. right? What you're not doing, and here's the key thing, what you're not doing is making it such that what we mean by two things is making two of those things and two others of those things equal five of those things. Mm-hmm. You're not doing that. Yes. Because essentially what we're saying is there is objective reality in the world. 
And and here you can kind of get at all of this, right? And this is why this is such a, a big issue. Whether it be like what we were talking about earlier with the trans issue, right? There is an objective reality that underlies the words that we're using. The postmodernist is saying, no, there's not. The postmodernist is saying that, look, the word man is a power word. The word woman is also, well, actually, let me put it this way. The word man and woman are power words. That is, men have power over women. And so we stock into those words, these notions of power. So the words themselves don't objectively refer to anything. They're just ways of controlling people. That's what the postmodernist said. So we therefore can make these words mean kind of whatever we want them to mean. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? So basically what the postmodernist does is he fundamentally undermines the idea that words can actually have meaning that correlate to the real world, that mm-hmm. correlate to reality. And so that's essentially what postmodernism is. And, and what we're fighting right now is all rooted in various subcategories of postmodernism, whether it be critical race theory or um, something a lot, or, you know, or whether it be queer studies and all that kind of stuff. These are all postmodern. And that's, that's really where the fight is right now. Yeah. That's very enlightening. I'm glad we talked about this. This is helping me out a lot. We should probably wrap this up. Yeah. We've this, already uh, been going for over two hours. <laughs> so a yeah. um, couple of final questions. Who is your favorite historical character? Oh, goodness. I mean, so can I limit it outside of the Bible? Because obviously it's Jesus. And if it's not Jesus, then it's going to be probably, I don't know who would be next uh, in the Bible. Abraham would probably be my next. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to go through a lot of Bible. Yeah, let's throw out the Bible for fun. Okay, so if I throw out the scriptures, I don't know why, but my gut reaction right now is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Hmm. You know who that is? Yes, I do. Yeah, so, I mean, for those who are listening, Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor who basically took part in the resistance against Hitler in World War II um, and actually took part uh, in a series of schemes to try to assassinate Hitler. Mm -hmm. And when one of those schemes came very close, as, by the way, shown in the movie Valkyrie, Mm -hmm. Hitler uh, turned, Hitler devoted himself, dedicated himself to finding these people who were out to get him. And so Bonhoeffer got rounded up, sent to, well, first to prison and then subsequently to a concentration camp. And then Bonhoeffer ultimately was killed the day before the camp was liberated. Wow. And uh, he's one of my heroes. Um, I'll never forget. So he was, he was taken to a room and kind of anticipating his death. And he, during his final time, he got on his knees and he read the Psalms. And I thought that was totally appropriate because when he was in prison, he wrote a letter to his brother in which he said, I, you know, I started off today reading the Psalms today. It is the joy of my life. And so here was a man who whose joy was in the reading of the scripture. And when the guard came to take him to the gallows to hang him, he opened the door and the, the you know, Bonhoeffer just looked up at him and said, is it time? And the guy said, yes. And he walked him to the gallows and Bonhoeffer walked up to the gallows, he turned and looked at the guard and said, this is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. And then he went and he allowed himself to be hanged. And so mm-hmm. uh, I think he would be the guy I'd go to because I probably thought more about him and probably have tried to emulate, or I guess want to emulate him more than just about anybody else. Okay. 
So I have a couple wrap-up questions. You can yeah. talk as much as you want, or you can answer them fast if you're getting tired. Either way. Okay. Do you like The Office or Parks and Rec better? Okay, so I like The British Office better than both. Oh. And I like Parks and Rec better than The Office, American Office. So The British Office, which is, and this is where my critique, like, so if, if, the, if the American Office had ended at season four, I would have liked it way better than Parks and Rec. But after season four, I thought the British or the American office just got tedious and unnecessary. Whereas Parks and Rec, I felt like after season two, it got really good. But the British office for me is like the pinnacle of comedic television. Like it's it. And what I loved about it was the, you know, Ricky Gervais, the guy who created the office, it was all his idea he didn't want an like he hated the idea of the sitcom that goes on forever. Mm -hmm. And he also hated laugh tracks. Mm -hmm. And so what he did when he created the office was he wanted to get rid of the laugh tracks to get rid of the clap tracks and all that kind of stuff to have basically nobody telling the audience how to laugh. Mm -hmm. He also hated, Oh, what are those? What do they call them? Like phrases that I can't remember the term for it. This, those lines and phrases that become, catchwords that everybody in the culture uses sure. he hated that he didn't want any of that in his show and he wanted the show to not go on forever so the original office was 12 episodes with an hour-long special and that was it that's the whole story and it sufficiently and wonderfully told the whole story hmm. the last episode of the office the the pam and jim character finally after everything come together and fall in love and that's the way it ends, as it should have ended. And everybody, I remember the first time I watched it, I was with a bunch of friends. Everybody stood up and applauded. And yeah. it was just a beautiful ending. But the American office became everything Ricky Gervais hated because <laughs> it went on forever. It didn't even make sense because the way the Amer the British office was told was like it was a real, what's the word I'm looking for? A um, It was like a real documentary. Like sure. it, was, it was literally long enough to just be a real BBC documentary. Whereas the American office was a 10 year long thing. Yeah. So it went on forever, just like Ricky Gervais hated. It got rid of the laugh track and the clap track, but it basically replaced it with the camera. So the yep. camera became the laugh track. Like if you ever wanted to know when something was wrong or when to laugh, the camera goes to Jim and he looks at you and then you know when you're supposed to laugh. Mm -hmm. And also it had all the catchphrases. That's the word, the catchphrases, right? Yeah. It had the catchphrases that still permeate our culture. That's what she said. And, that kind of stuff. So it had all these things that Ricky Gervais hated. And uh, so for me, I don't know. That's 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 why I definitely prefer it goes the British office, then Parks and Rec, and then the American office. Um, although I still, those first four seasons of the American office were wonderful. And I love the characters, and I love Jim and Pam, and I love Michael Scott. So I'm not, like, trying to poo-poo it. I just felt it it didn't go where it should have gone. And it should have ended much earlier. So I think if it had ended earlier, I would have definitely liked it better than Parks and Rec. Interesting. You make a really compelling point, and I will probably have to go watch The British Office. I One had started it, and it was so dirty that That's I couldn't thing. do it. The British Office, and I do need to give that disclaimer, is way more inappropriate because it's Britain, and they don't have the same kinds of uh, rules regarding their television. Yeah. And, and so consequently, it can be pretty foul. And I feel bad about that because I, I don't like like I really do try to avoid shows like that in general. But at the time, I don't know, it was just my friends were watching. and It was just a 
thing. I mean, I'm not, I guess I can't justify it. It is a dirty show. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In Genesis chapters one through 11, we have creation through, it's before Abraham. Yep. Do you think that that is legend or history? Yeah. So I have a pretty nuanced view of Genesis one through 11. When asked, I always say, I think it is historical and literal that basically God created the world that in more or less that time span, that basically the current view of the world, that it's some, what, what what do they have it at now? 14 and a half billion years old by the world. I mean, the universe uh, that generally, I don't think that's correct. And that something that can, that basically is consistent with the Genesis narrative is correct. However, I'm not firm on that. Like I am very open to being wrong on that. And I am, and I definitely engage in conversations in which people assume the universe is 14 and a half billion years old. And in which people assume that the first chapters or the chapters one through 11 are parabolic or are metaphoric or are something like that. And I am open to that. Like, I don't have a problem with that. Like one of my favorite apologists right now is a guy named Francis Collins, who interestingly is actually the head of the NIH the National Institute of Health, hmm. and he is actually the guy coordinating the effort for vaccines right now hmm. um, for for COVID. Uh, and he's also the guy who mapped the human genome. So he got the Nobel Prize. He's the guy who mapped the human genome. He's a believer, and he has a ministry called Bios Logos, but he is an evolutionary biologist, mm-hmm. and he does believe not only in an old earth, he believes that evolution is the means by which God hmm. basically caused things to happen. I love listening to him and I am more than willing to consider his points and to to think about the implications of what he says. I don't like a lot of like people who will assert what I did earlier. Like I am like if you were to ask me how confident I am, the first 11 chapters are supposed to be literal historic. I'd probably say like 54 percent. Like I am just over the top on that. I am very open to the idea of an old earth. And and one of the reasons why I am is if you actually take a look at the Big Bang Theory, I think it's one of the most tragic things ever because people don't understand that historically, prior to the Big Bang Theory, people thought the universe existed always. Even Christians. Like when you read Hmm. Thomas Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas struggled because he said it's hard to understand how two things can be eternal, God and the universe. And he says, but it doesn't make sense otherwise. The Big Bang Theory shows us that there was a moment when the universe came into existence. And it's really hard to explain how there could have been nothing and then everything. Hmm. That's very hard. And that's very hard for scientists to explain. They don't have an answer. They generally, well, I mean, they have theories about how it might have happened. So people have the expanding and collapsing universe theory. But these are not, like, these are pretty haphazard theories. They're not really rooted in observational science. It's more like a like a what possibly could have happened. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It does. And so for me, it's like one of the greatest things that ever happened to science was the fact that our understanding of time and of background radiation in the universe shows that the universe had a beginning. But Christians got so caught up in the fact that that beginning was pointed to as being like 13 billion years ago that we never saw it as one of the greatest things ever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So people will like freak out about the Big Bang Theory. I'm like, I'm totally good with the Big Bang Theory. It's a really good thing for Christianity. Prior to that, people just assumed that all the that the universe and life has just always existed. So they never had to explain where the universe and life came from. 
Hmm. And now they do. And that, and that has been an exceedingly difficult task in spite of everything we know for people to come up with that. So I'm very open to that stuff. And by the way, I want to add one more thing. When you look at the way Christians interpreted Genesis in the first 350 years of church history, they didn't interpret it literally. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's saying something that tells mm-hmm. me that even early in church history, when Christians didn't have all this science trying to persuade them to mm-hmm. not look at, they still looked at the first 11 chapters as not being literal. Not all Christians, but majority, like the majority of theologians we have that deal with the first 11 chapters allegorized it or looked at it as being some kind of a metaphor for something bigger than just the events of the world and how it created. So the fact that in the church, in the history of the church, that has been an accepted view and that's been something that people have been able to play with and think about, that makes me feel perfectly comfortable with people who believe that, even though I lean towards the idea that it's a literal. And by the way, if people weren't wondering, I lean towards the idea of a literal Genesis because that seems to be the best explanation for what we get in that time. That's all. There are lots of theological consequences that seem to follow. Like, for instance, God identifies the seventh day as a Sabbath. Well, that makes sense if it was an actual seven-day period when he mm-hmm. created the world. Or the the idea of a sin nature that we as Christians believe has been passed to us only makes sense if there was literally a first man who actually sinned and then who passed on his sin to his offspring. So uh, those things are things that make sense in the context of a literal Genesis. So that's kind of why I believe that. But I'm open to other theories about those things for sure. Do you believe in aliens? Uh, I neither believe nor disbelieve. I'm agnostic on aliens. If God wanted to create aliens, he certainly could have. But I have no reason for thinking that he did. And I, I should say this. I'm inclined to think there are not aliens because... The science that we actually have done, by this point, you know, most people scratch their heads as to, like, the belief is, is there should be an abundance of alien life out there. And that one thing is clear is there is not. Mm-hmm. We have yet to find anything that confirms the existence of even one simple uh, alien life. And so, you know, one little simple bit of alien life, which is a conundrum for people. The idea is if er- if life could have developed here then presumably it must have developed elsewhere. But so far, the evidence seems to be stacking up against that. Now, by the way, most scientists still believe that there's alien life because there's so much of the universe that is unexplored, you know, and and is unknown to us. But we also have uncovered a lot. And there should have been life in that that bit we've uncovered, and there isn't. So. Okay. Who or what inspires you to be your best self? Um, once again, aside from Jesus, because mm-hmm. <laughs> definitely I would say Jesus, who or what inspires me beyond that? Uh, I would say my students. Oh, yeah. My students, actually, sure. they're the ones who like that. They're the ones who I feel the worst about if I didn't do well. Like they're the ones I feel I let down the most if I am falling behind in my preparation or in my grading or you name, you know, you know. I mean, they are the most important people in my life. Yeah. So. Cool. Yeah. So that's it for all my questions. Awesome. Thank you for well, doing thank this. thank you, Abigail. I really appreciate this. This was fun. Yes, it has been tremendously fun. And I do remember that you said you have your podcast. And what is it called? 
Oh, it's called um, A History of Christian Theology. And uh, I I um, basically, I do it with somebody you know, I think. You know Trevor Adams, right? I do. Trevor, Trevor and Meredith Adams. So Trevor is one of the co-hosts with me, as well as uh, Trevor and my, a friend of ours named Chad Kim. Chad is actually the guy who does all the stuff you do for yours. Mm-hmm. Like He's the one who who produces it. He's the one who edits it. He's the one who uploads it. He does all the work. Um, so he really is the host. And we're kind of like, it's Trevor and I who are the co-hosts who join him. But basically the nature of the podcast is each time we get together, we read one of the works from Christian history, um, a theologically significant treatise. And we're trying to start, like we started at the beginning, like the first non-biblical or not, uh, yeah, non-biblical work. And then we try to just work forward and try to hit on the vast majority of works that are out there. And so right now we're in the fifth century, the 400s, reading the theologians from that era. Um, So we've done lately, we've done Augustine and Ambrose and Basil of Caesarea and those guys. So we read the work and then we discuss it. Wow. That is so exciting. I am going to go look that up as soon as we get off. Thank you. A little word of warning, especially early on, there was some it, like production issues. It didn't sound great. So sure. I think it sounds better now, but it's still probably not super wonderful, but sounds much better or, like after the first 15 episodes or so. Okay. Yeah. Maybe I'll invest in a little bit better equipment and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We increasing, increasingly got better equipment and better platforms for recording. Sure. So, yeah. Okay. Well, you have a wonderful weekend. Thank and you. Thank you, you as well, Abigail. Yeah, enjoy your uh, Labor Day. I will. All, All right. right. We'll talk to you later. Talk to you later. Bye.